Hello and welcome to the Canadian Wargamer podcast. Yes, it's the Canadian Wargamer podcast featuring two affable and youngish granddads, Mike and James, talking about primarily miniature wargames and the occasional hex encounter excursion from Mike from our unique perspective in the Great White North. And as the strains of La Foy d'Arabla die away, here are your hosts, Mike and James. James, how are you now? Oh, we're all right, Mike. Cool. So tonight we are sitting at... 1200-ish downloads of the podcast. So that's pretty cool. We have, uh, we're ticking up towards 78 or 79 subscribers through the, uh, that's through Podbean. I'm, there may be others subscribing through through Apple. I was kind of amused that somebody who found the, our podcast on Apple Podcasts gave us three out of five stars. You know, it's kind of like being the Motel 6 of podcasts, right? Yeah. You know, I mean, I think if this podcast gives you a comfy bed and uh, with no fleas and a small continental breakfast. I mean, yeah, nice way to waste two hours. We're, we're not the share. Yeah, we're not going to have big. I know I don't have any any deep thoughts or hot takes. I'm not going to. You know, this isn't only murders in the building. <laughs> okay. <laughs> no, no murders on this podcast. Have you, seen, have you seen that? No, I haven't. Tell me about it. It's a comedy on Disney Plus. It's got Martin Short and Steve Martin. And they're too old has they live in this, you know, apartment building in downtown New York. Right. Uh, Martin Short is a musical director and Steve Martin is is he's an actor whose big claim to fame was playing this TV detective for like nine seasons and he hasn't really gotten anything since. He was big in the eighties. And and then there's they both unknown to each other have been listening to this true crime podcast and then there's a fire in their building and they both you know they they go to the deli across the street to and yeah and then they've realized that they're the fan you know them and this other girl are all fans of this this podcast and then that one of their neighbors was murdered during the fire alarm ah so they start investigating and podcast about their investigation and wacky hijinks happen wow it's very funny all right well, I will look for that. So that's, um, yeah, Disney Plus. I don't get Disney Plus, so I'm one of the few people in the world that hasn't seen The Mandalorian, for that matter, but maybe oh, I should. Gee, that's Mandalorian saved Star Wars for crying. I know. I, know. I, I live under a rock, and I, I just live for podcasts. The Mandalorian, it, it's it, it's not great TV. It's okay. I'm not a huge Star Wars fan, so. I'm excited that Babylon 5 is rumored to be rebooted. But... I am frightened by that. Great that it's great that, that Straczynski, did I hear Pronounce his name? Straczynski. JMS for the in crowd. Like I'm, I'm glad he's working with it and he's writing the pilot. I appreciate that, you know, he's he's excited that he's got an opportunity to do more stuff with the universe. Yeah. But I'm also really frightened that it... Because, I mean, how can you have Babylon 5 without being on the station, without Ivanova, without Londo, without Jakar, you know, without those great characters and story arcs? Well... Yeah, except you'd have to re, re, reboot all of the cast, right? Because half the cast is either dead or they're they're quite old now. So, uh, yeah. Yeah. 
Anyway, it would have to be like a, a Battlestar Galactica reboot. But oh, yeah, we'll talk about that. No. Well, let's get back to the uh, let's get back to our wonderful podcast. A couple of things I just wanted to uh, shout out to people. Our friend Keeper Dave on Twitter at DMCFFD. Dave, you just you just had your surgery. I'm glad to see you on Twitter that you recovered from uh, your surgery. You're doing well. So stay strong, brother. You wrote very kindly that you listened to our podcast you like the interview with pub figures it reaffirmed your plan to one day own every figure bob merch has ever produced and uh, that is a life goal my friend stay strong aspire to that i'm three quarters of the way there i think he says i hope to meet all three of these guys one day so yeah that'd be nice yeah, come to hot ledge you'll meet two of us <laughs> meet two of us and our friend from Ireland, Conrad Kinch. Did you see he wrote a Conrad wrote a little piece in uh, Miniature War Games. He has a column called Send Three and Sixpence, and he had a little wrap up of five wargaming podcasts that he liked, and we made it. He, wow! Yeah, That's amazing. Sitting has nothing to say. Well, he says the podcasts run long, usually about two hours. That's true. This one will run at least two hours. They cover a lot of ground. He says he skips the Canadian Wargamer content because he doubts he'll ever get over here uh, to a convention. But he likes the Canadian military history section, and he thought that our comments on Vikings being dicks were probably... uh, He said that comment got my vote. So he said I'd recommend the the podcast to any Wargamer with a yen for podcast, but I'd say it's essential listening for those based in the great white north and we heartily agree so thanks conrad thanks for taking the time to uh, chat us up that was lovely of you wow yeah so we've got like three more viewers from now i i think so yeah we'll probably wrap up the irish market for, for the, <laughs> the irish canadian market all right so let's go to what let's go to our interview this is the first time james that we have two guests on at the same time i know it's pretty exciting we went out on the street and we hauled people into our studios and bribed them with uh, beaver tails and uh free minis so um yeah so we're very excited tonight to have jacob stotner and evan switzer and this is part of um an episode that james and i have been loosely calling the kids in the hall uh now our guests may be too young to remember that but if you we should get some cancon points for that by the way cancon points exactly so um, if, if you were around watching TV in the 1990s, there were these really cool, uh, there was this really cool comedians where uh, they called themselves the kids in the hall. And we're talking to the, air quotes, younger generation of Canadian gamers tonight. So, uh, Jacob and Evan, welcome. Thank you. Thank you. Glad to have you guys on. Jacob, we're going to start with you. If you could maybe just tell us a little bit about who you are and, um, of course, um, talk about uh, your passion projects and must contain minis and all that stuff. Okay. My name is Jacob. I run a blogging website that's all about miniatures called must contain minis there i focus on historical and indie war games and games that aren't necessarily mainstream on top of that i also write for the bell of lost souls doing a weekly column for them as far as war gaming and my history with it i was actually late to war gaming because i didn't really know about it when i was growing up um, we didn't have warhammer or anything like that where i grew up instead we had Dungeons and Dragons, and often Ooh. I would find myself with a hex, or not hex paper, but grid paper and mm-hmm. a pen, trying to basically make a miniatures game out of the Dungeons and Dragons rules. Right. And when I played Dungeons Ooh. and Dragons with my friends, um, I just wanted to play the combat sections, and I wanted to map it out, even though back then it was more abstract. I'm in this scene, and I feel uncomfortable about it. That was oh. me too. <laughs> 
was it? Yeah, yeah well, that was me too, Jacob. Okay, yeah. okay, yeah. I didn't realize. But yeah, so growing up, we didn't have Warhammer 40K. We didn't have um, any of that stuff, at least where I grew up. So the first time I played a miniatures game, I was 19 in college, and it was Necromunda. Okay. <laughs> which which oh, was cool. a lot of fun. Um, yeah. First miniatures game I bought was years later. It was Warhammer 40K, the fourth edition starter set with the Space Marines and the Tyranids. So, yeah, that was my first uh, entry into miniature gaming and painting up my own figures. I didn't play a lot, but I did collect. I did paint. Um, but eventually I left Warhammer because I got upset with the pricing. <laughs> um, As one does. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, to fill the void, I tried a few different substitutes. I went back to the role-playing games, but really I just want to be a role player with the dice. So a role with quotes, because I don't want to do the other stuff. I just want to play the combat sections. So that wasn't a great fit for me. And I went into board games as well. So the, the little miniature board games that have figures that you can paint, I would paint those up. I have a fully painted up set of number 44 in my collection mm -hmm. and some other board games too. So that, that was where I got my fix until I heard about Hot Lead. And I talked to my wife and she actually encouraged me, you should go to this and check it out. So I went to Hot Lead and I learned that there were so many other alternatives out there aside from just Warhammer or the or the ones that I was finding at my local gaming shop, which was mostly Malifaux, Warhammer, oh, War Machine. Oh yeah. <laughs> so so those those were the ones that I could find easily, but I didn't know about all these other alternatives. Um, it was actually the RAFM guys that got me in with their USX Modern Day Heroes. I bought a ton of that stuff. I have probably a hundred of their figures in my basement. Most of them painted up right now. Not, not my best work because it was my early work. <laughs> so, but I do have lots of those figures. I, I, I generally find that my collection is a rotating collection. So I'll find one thing and I'll buy into that and I'll play with it. I'll build it. I, I like building more than painting. And then eventually I'll sell it and I'd, I'd start a new project. Lately, though, um, I've been spending more and more time with online ventures. So I've been sharing my miniature adventure on Must Contain Minis, uh, talking about my miniatures and that on YouTube. So Must Contain Minis has about almost almost 800 posts right now. Right. Um, YouTube has just over 50 now. Um, I am also on Facebook and Instagram and Twitter. <laughs> and then on top of the content that I make for those, where I focus mostly on reviews, showcases, and before COVID, battle reports. I'm also on Bell of Lost Souls, and I write a weekly column for them. Um, and on top of that, I'm also starting a new project um, for a website called Tech Presenters. And that is about... Um, we, it's for content creators and presenters, and it talks about technical tips to make it easier for them to present to their audiences. And my first few posts in there, I've actually, because I've been doing the YouTube and all that for so long, they actually have miniature pictures inside of my uh, posts for the tech presenters, because I'm talking about how to use PowerPoint and my very first videos for my YouTube channel. They were all made with, with PowerPoint. And eventually I just kept adding more and more elements to it. So 
I started with just straight PowerPoint with recording my voice and I went from there and just kept growing and now I'm using a video editor for, for my work there. Bell of Lost Souls. Yeah, tell us, tell us about that, Jacob. So Bell of Lost Souls is one of the largest Warhammer 40k websites out there. They are really big. And lately, they've been kind of churning gears and going into geek culture as well as miniature war, war gaming. So they're not just about Warhammer anymore. They're also about movies and geek geekery. <laughs> but um, they have a wide platform. They, the posts that I do there get a much wider audience than they do on my website. And it's part of my effort to showcase these games that I did not know existed that other people consider either obscure or indie or historical. I want to make them a little more mainstream. So I'm presenting them to a larger audience. Whereas wow. again, on my website, don't I don't get that traction on must contain minis. Their website's much bigger. Jacob, do you have a sense of the demographic? Like who's how old are the people who are, who are looking at uh, Bell of Lost Souls? I don't know their statistics. Yeah. <laughs> I can tell you the statistics of mine by looking into my Facebook or looking onto my YouTube analytics. But for their statistics, I don't know. I'm guessing it's generally a younger audience, yeah. um, my age and younger, because they are very uh, they are very Warhammer and kind of Dungeons and Dragons related. Okay. And you were good enough. Oh, I'm going to uh, make sure that the podcast notes for this have um, links to all of the project URLs that uh, Jacob, you and Evan are talking about tonight. So mm -hmm. in case anybody doesn't know, they'll be able to find them at the end of the notes. And yeah. you were you were kind enough, Jacob, to plug uh, this podcast on Bell of Lost Souls. So yeah, yeah. thank you yeah. for that. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, and, and I know it's an interesting year. I've gotten comfortable with it, but it, it made me angry at first. Um, you weren't the first person to, to use the phrase. Well, actually, maybe you, you, you did. You mentioned it that someone said, oh, yeah, said to you, oh, yeah, you're playing those a couple of years ago and we're arguing when, when people were, were starting fights about how to grow the hobby and, yeah. and, and it's great missionary zeal and, and uh, <laughs> nonsense like that. And, and it, it, when, when you first said that, I was like, what the hell, man? Like, you know, no, obscure, it's, you know? It's a phrase that people have told me um, when I was going yeah. from one game to another. So if I, I was playing, like, uh, Flames of War, and, you know, I want to get into Bolt Action or, or Frostgrave or, or something different, and, you know, to them, they, they tell me those games are obscure. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> so, I know. Yeah, and, it's, it's just and repeating I've, some I've heard before. Oh, I, I know, I know. Yeah, I'm not mad at you. I was mad at the person who said that <laughs> to you. Um, but yeah, like, I mean, looking at, yeah, the, just the numbers, really, you know, Adepticon, right? 50,000 people there to play 40K and X-Wing and, you know, some Flames of War, and they probably have a bolt action tournament now, you know, whereas Historicon, 5,000. So that kind of tells you that, yeah, uh, I mean, the stuff that, we in the another great phrase I, I just heard the other week was the airfix generation. Yes. Um, the stuff we play is pretty obscure. You know, where it, it's like the, the, the games that came on behind us have just really exploded in popularity. Yeah. And that's maybe something we can get into in a bit is, is how perspective is, is um, it all depends on, on whatever demographic or generational hill you're looking on, you're looking at, right? 
So yeah, yeah, James and I are totally the Airfix generation. Some of the first figures I bought were really uh, early minifig sculpts. That's a long time ago. And there's a there's one of the things we want to kind of get into tonight is how generational ex, you know experiences or expectations shape how we we see as the hobby and how we use words as obscure. So Evan, can we uh, just switch the focus to you for a minute? If you want to yeah, just okay. introduce yourself and tell us a bit about yourself, I take it you wouldn't call yourself the Airfix generation. No. No, that's okay. uh, uh, the joke I was going to make, actually, on <laughs> this. Um, I stole your thunder, man. I'm sorry. <laughs> so my name's Evan Switzer. Um, you might know me as Switz Hobbies on Facebook. Or, You're that guy. Uh, Kisanis on the Ninth Age forums and a couple other gaming forums as well. Okay, you'll um, have to, you'll have, once you introduce yourself, you'll have to explain what the Ninth Age forums are. Yeah, so... My background in the hobby is um, I grew up with uh, my grandfather did a lot of model railroading. Um, so he had that down in the basement when I was a kid growing up. And then my dad was uh, and, and still is a large uh, fan of uh, scale model airplanes. So I oh, grew cool. up with uh, cool. um, and, and he did the big stuff, too. Like there was a 132nd um, collection of fighters, 148 bombers. He was Ooh. building from scratch plans a balsa wood a spitfire and i think about one eight scale yeah nice yeah um like like it's like 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 the thing had like a 36 inch wingspan um and like many hobbyists it to my memory is still a stalled project but (laughs) (laughs) it will be great someday yeah so i grew up um around a lot of history stuff my dad was a big fan my my grandfather on my dad's side was a mechanic for de Havilland so he built mosquitoes at the de Havilland plant during the war and then my grandfather on my mother's side was with the Royal Canadian Engineers in Italy um you know lots of history and because my grandfather had a a relatively different experience of war than those on the front lines he was more than happy to talk about his experience running around Italy on a motorcycle <laughs> you know behind the lines and away from everything he was the one going in after everywhere so I, I grew up you know around history and, and war and warfare but I got into fantasy through the Dragonlance novels when I was in middle school right actually. it was before, like like I had heard of Lord of the Rings and stuff but they had in my like middle school library a whole slew of the forgotten realms and dragonlance novels paperback and like you know to a 10 year old kid looking to change out of things i got into that um then there were some kids playing magic the gathering on lunch hour when i was in the sixth grade and i looked at it i'm like what is this because the thing that always drove me nuts with hockey cards and baseball cards is like okay i've got them now what and so as soon as i found out there's like wait you can collect things and you can then play games with them well this is awesome so i did magic the gathering for a little bit i still do to this day but then a few years later one of my friend's brothers had these little miniature elf figures monopose holding a shield and a spear and again i'm like what is this their models and he's like yeah and we're playing games with them like so you can collect them build them and then play games with them and it was like the same revelation i had with scale modeling and everything else i'm like so you don't just put it on a shelf and display you can actually like do stuff with it and that's how i got into warhammer fantasy and that was during the fifth edition um i saved up a bunch of pocket cash and i bought the starter set with the lizardmen and the bretonians and mm-hmm. um that's how i went down that rabbit hole and I was always into 
historical gaming because of the stuff that I was into. Like I loved Axis and Allies. I loved getting into that stuff as we went through high school and into university. But the problem always was is accessibility. The only thing that was ever in the stores where I grew up was was Warhammer. And then at the end was when Flames of War started to get a little bit more mainstream. And I'm like, oh, that's cool, but it's the wrong scale for everything I've collected and built for the last you know, 15 years. So eventually I got into, I found some historical rules and miniatures. I actually, back when, uh, James, when you were running your web shop, uh, some of my first uh, World War II miniatures were from, from you. Um, got my rules of engagement rules from there, which I still love actually. Rules of engagement, I think was a, was a really good rule set. Um, I'd still love to play it more. Uh, got into bolt action after that. Um, but yeah, primarily Warhammer, and uh, Warhammer Fantasy and Warhammer 40k. And then as time got on, I never did anything competitive. It was mostly me and my friends just playing pickup games with each other. Didn't really fall away from it, uh, as a lot of people do through the university years. I just kind of just played it um, when we all got back together on holidays, Thanksgiving and Christmas. Um, We would just play, you know, make up our own scenarios and play these games. And a lot of them were basically like, you know, let's look at all the movies and make Warhammer scenarios from those movies um, <laughs> that were often the, the historical based. So when I got into a broader aspect, one of my best friends, he was also a big history nut, big airplane nut, and he was always up for trying historical game, and especially anything World War II, um, uh, Vietnam, modern stuff. He got into a lot of that with me. So that was really lucky that one of my friends was also really into historical gaming to get me into that side of things. Found Hotled, which blew my mind that all the years I lived in Kitchener, there was this thing just half an hour down the road that I had never heard of. And then I'm like, what have I been missing? This is insane. This is awesome. <laughs> it's like, it's right here. It's a half hour drive away. I didn't even have to worry about the hotel stay at first until I realized, no, it's just much easier to just stay at the hotel. Um, <laughs> you're trying to drive home. Which um, was the first hot ledge you came to? Uh, um, I want to say 2016. Oh, Okay. Yeah, I think it was around then, I, uh, twenty maybe twenty fifteen. Um, so, so you made it to about four before COVID. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We're already um, at the Art Park. Yep. Yeah, I was already at the Art Park Hotel. Um, that's when I found, um, you know, the uh, the Charlie Company rules. Um, my buddy um, absolutely fell in love with. Uh, oh, what the heck is it? The the hex based um, fighter game. That the guys in Chatham always run. Check your um, six. Check your six. He's a huge check your fix. Check your six fan now. Like yeah. he is. I can't tell you how much money that guy's blown into it since getting exposed to it at Holland. <laughs> um, and 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 it just sent him down the micro armor rabbit hole. Um, I've actually I've I've played games with Ian Tetlow. Um, I've been over to his house since Hotlead, so like I've met a bunch of people. I realized some um, uh, uh, Professor Dan Hutter. Um, mm-hmm. The first time I met him was when he was teaching my Roman history class, and then I'm sitting there at Hotlet, and he's wearing some funny hat, running one of his Mongols Mar- <laughs> Mar- 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 and games. I'm like, "That's that's my history prof. <laughs> this, is, <laughs> this is this is a little bit of an interesting situation." So it yeah. just it 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 really did a, a an eye opening of the wider world that I knew was always there, but I didn't know how to get it, and that was always something that I like I. I knew there was something more out there, but even in the early days of the internet, I had no idea how to find that stuff. And luckily, Hotline kind of helped break down the barrier. And I've, I've since gone um, and tried to make this easier for other people as well. The thing that happened to me was around 2015 when Warhammer 
got axed is um, I didn't really like what came afterwards. And it's not to say that it's a bad game. It's just that it wasn't for me. Um, when, when Warhammer got axed, I spent years collecting this medieval fantasy blocks of troops you remove the models it's not just element based with with morale pips it's you know the the units get smaller as they fight out and it's a style of game that i started with and that i liked um for all of its downsides it was a passion for me and so because of my exposure to the wider world of wargaming outside of gw i knew there was more out there i knew there was other stuff that existed um i tried king's war didn't really like that. And then I found from, I can't remember if it was through one of the Wargaming forums or um, on Facebook or something like that, but people started talking to me about, oh, well, have you tried um, Ninth Age? It's kind of a, a, a good replacement for those who miss Warhammer, who, you know, Kings of War maybe wasn't their style. And I got looking into it and I absolutely fell in love with the concept because what it is is instead of a company making the rules is a bunch of the guys who in Europe basically made the fairness and compensated rules that were like, okay, this stuff is out of balance. This stuff is too powerful. This stuff's out of whack. This is unclear. Here's a whole bunch of stuff that like clarifies the rules. Like these guys were making like 20, 30 page booklets to clarify the rules so that you could run these tournaments without confusion and without having to constantly call people over to like interpret what was essentially poorly written rules that didn't exactly have a tournament in mind. They were, you know, roll, roll dice and get on with it, which is great, unless you're dealing with 100 people at a tournament. So these guys basically got together and completely rewrote the concept of that game from the ground up. Um, and more importantly than that, they have completely built a new world and setting and background and story and it's completely volunteer driven and i just absolutely fell in love with that concept of you know in this day and age with the internet and all the talents that the diverse group of people who play war games have from their day-to-day -day jobs you know the the argument was is can we do this ourselves you know is this this is the ultimate experience in self-publishing <laughs> ultimately um and i i thought this was an awesome idea, an awesome concept. Everything is done volunteer and put online for free. And I asked if uh, they needed any help. I joined them to do some proofreading because a lot of people who write the stuff there, English is their second language. I did ESL teaching for a while. I actually trained as an ESL teacher before I, uh, I decided to go in a different direction professionally. Yeah, I started helping with uh, clarification of rules and, and just basic editing and grammar. And next thing i know i'm helping advise the whole project uh with a group of people from all over the world there's you know the the people that run it with me are um there's an ip lawyer there's uh phds in sweden there's a teacher in germany there's uh, a gentleman who works for the bbc in, in the uk like it's it's a huge assortment of what wargaming is is all these diverse people from around the world um and we're using the power of the internet to kind of put this thing out there for the community by members of the community and um it's something that i, I actually wish other genres and game systems could really get into it's uh it's, yeah. it's kind of become my number one passion now wow so yeah. just so just so i'm clear evan ninth age is um community continuation of of an old of the old Warhammer set of rules, is that it's designed that... to play in a very similar manner? Okay. Um, so, what's the genesis? Level. The genesis of it, the sort of urtext of it. So, when Warhammer Fantasy was officially killed off in 2015 and replaced with Age of Sigmar, okay. um, 
which was essentially gone from individual models formed into square blocks of troops on square bases, right, um, right, turned into skirmish like a 40k essentially. Okay, okay. It's and like I said, AOS is for a lot of people. I know it's a fun skirmish game, but I'm like, I I don't want another skirmish game. I have all of these other skirmish games already that I play. If I wanted to play a skirmish game, I would have played a skirmish game. Right. <laughs> um, right. I I wanted you know my big blocks of guys. Um, and as they die, I wanted to remove them off of the unit. I didn't want element-based ones like what you get with Kings of War, you know, where it's just like morale, 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 and then the unit just blips and disappears because it falls. I wanted the same style of game as individual models formed into a unit, and as they die, you pull them away, and it's it's you know the classic ranks and flanks of what Warhammer was. Okay. And so Ninth Age was basically how do we redo this from the ground up? Right. And that's essentially what the what the what the genesis was is to fill that gap in the market. Right, right. So you basically took a discontinued um, uh, game title and kind of made it your own. More than that, um, it's completely its own setting. Like everything on it has been completely looked at. Right. To it, it, you know, you can use the same models, but mm -hmm. it is not the same world. Um, the the stat lines and and a lot of the way it reads and plays is different but it's the same style it's you know um a good example of that would be like looking at say a warhammer and and like maybe a stargrave or actually it's probably like a necromunda and a stargrave okay right like necromunda and stargrave are two very similar games in that they're small 10 15 guys fighting in dense um terrain filled environments and it's science fiction, but that's kind of where things more or less end. And that's the same idea that we've tried to do with this is, is you know, we want to make sure that it's for people who have those collections who miss that style of gaming, but it is very much its own thing. It's its own game uh -huh. um, and it's its own setting and it's its own world. And we've tried extremely hard to not only make that happen, but to, to make it what we always wanted um, various other games to be. We wanted to make it its, its own unique but very engaging setting and give it a lot of depth that maybe others other games and other settings have missed over the years cool cool yeah it's it's i'm kind of embarrassed i don't know anything i didn't really know anything about ninth age until nobody does right <laughs> that's that's the other half of it and and that's what yeah. i mean when i said that um you know outside of the big the big games there's this whole wild world well yeah i've now become essentially one of the managers of a, of another indie game that's that's now another one of those ones that people don't know about so part yeah. of my thing is yeah. now i've now i'm seeing things from the other perspective of how do you get people to play your game when they don't know about your game right you know, it's it, like i said it you know all the downsides of the self-publishing all the downside of a small self-published marketing game it's all <laughs> i get to see it all <laughs> yeah well right. you should you're not trying to pay the rent with it so well, well yeah, yeah. I, I decided to you know uh, the upshot is at least we knew we were never going to make money with this by doing it all for free yeah jacob is is ninth age something you've been tracking it's been something that i've been uh, watching on the sidelines for sure yeah. and it's something that i've also been wanting to go out and try sometime but i just our schedules haven't lined up yet right. <laughs> world ground to a and halt. Then COVID, <laughs> yeah. yeah covid yeah. ruins everything it yeah. has. I haven't honestly played a game since COVID started. I've been oh. still following all the games. I'm still reading yep. the rules. I'm still playing a little bit of the rules to see how they would feel. But as far as actually getting together with my friends, I haven't done it. I've, I haven't even tried it. I haven't played a solo game recently either. So I've played since, <laughs> so, uh, since, since the first 
you know, COVID lockdown in April, 2020, I think I've been in person gaming three times. Yeah. And it, even then it was like, you know, sh- there was a lot of, we had to make sure all our ducks in a row before we, before everybody felt Absolutely. comfortable with it, given this, the, you know, the situations in our real lives. So yeah. 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 <laughs> it's, yeah. it's a crazy time. For sure. For yeah. sure. I have huge admiration for people who have mastered systems like Tabletop Simulator. Um, James and I have talked on a previous show about our really lame-ass attempts to try to play games with, you know, handheld smartphones and over Zoom and or FaceTime, and it's been pretty uh, unsatisfying. But yeah. Well, now I've got this this twenty-five foot extension cord for my for my webcam, so I can like move it all around the table. Well, it's fun. So I'll have to try something again. That's actually one thing where um, I actually I, I've actually done a lot more gaming now. Um, there's a platform out there. So first of all, Tabletop Simulator, as a quote unquote younger person, um, very much into computers, very much into computer gaming. You know, I, I built my own gaming computer all through high school and in and university, and like I'm very much into that. I can't stand Tabletop Simulator. It drives me off the wall. Um, oh really? I know. I know some people out there who are like, "Oh yeah, you can do." I'm like, "No, this this is entirely too clunky for." I can see maybe with VR, but a good example of that is someone's tried playing with me uh, Ninth Age on table, table, Tabletop Simulator, and it's you know individual models that move as one that you need to be able to move. So essentially, you have to make models locked to a movement tray and then i'm like this just you can you get away with bolt action you can get away with 40k and skirmish games where it's individual models moving individual time but as soon as you link things together to have to move them all in unison i just look at i'm like this is insanity this this is there's just i would rather play via webcam (laughs) and just kind of say like ah well you know fog of war whatever but one software suite that has kind of really saved things and that we've done a lot of in the ninth age community i know the kings king of kings of war community is also used a lot is a platform called universal battle and that's basically um a top-down 2d system uh it is subscription based you got to pay like i think it's like 50 euros buys you a year subscription or something like that and you can make up a bunch of models with it it's purely for things where there's 2D. So anything where you'd have to look at things from a model's perspective and deal with things like, you know, um, you know, your, your guys on the ground are trying to shoot at MG 42s up at a window and there's an elevation issue and some rule sets that deal with that. Yeah. You can't really do that with this, but for larger games, like uh, any of the hail Caesars or Surpoint or anything where it's really just, you know, you can essentially reduce the game to a 2D top down element. It works really well because right. it's got built in ranges and, and measuring systems into it you know just as an aside it's kind of ironic that um you know given the the debate between tabletop miniatures gaming which the traction of that has always been it's 3d it's aesthetically Mm -hmm. satisfying versus hex encounter gaming you know which is just is fairly abstract you've it's all 2d top down you have the unit whether it's got little figures or just nato iconography or whatever right um, it's ironic that we've taken, we're, we're using computers to take our 3D gaming and reduce it to, to 2D gaming, right? So, yeah. I mean, the upside to it, though, is it's allowed me to play games with people I would never otherwise have the opportunity to play games with. Absolutely. So, like, yeah. you know, with, yeah. with the 19th community, like I said, as I've got, you know, 
essentially co-workers for this project who live all over Europe and, and, and North America. And, you know, I was able to sit down and play a game with a guy who's currently living in Denmark and another oh. guy who is in the Netherlands. And, you know, these guys, these are guys who have been reading about their, their, their blogs and watching their projects and then built, paint their models and stuff for months and years. And without these kind of resources, I would never have the opportunity to play a game with them. So, would I prefer to play with my models in person? Absolutely. Yeah. But this yeah. is the, I mean, I'm not going to say no to this opportunity that's being given to me as well. And then, then the fact that now everybody's kind of learning how to use it. Right. So there isn't, I mean, there is an upside to it. It's not going to replace the real, the real deal, but, um, you know, trying to look at the silver lining for sure. 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 Yeah. The only, the only limitation is your, is the time zone difference really. Yeah. Which sucked. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> Yeah, well, James and I experienced that this week. We were trying to reschedule a interview with a guy in England. You know, there's a five-hour difference. And, and it's interesting that your experience, um, Evan, is, you know, I, I've heard similar stories about, you know, just sort of creative communities taking a project and running with it. Yep. Uh, people in all sorts of different countries. Um, the other day I was listening to an interview with a British guy called Mark Backhouse who's developed a, a large-scale uh, ancients battle system uh, tabletop gaming system using two millimeter figures which are you know that's an interesting kind of borderline thing between almost abstract where it's they're almost like big counters but when you see the table with these large blocks of troops you know you can imagine a giant ancients battle like Pharsalus or something where you've got multiple legions going at each other and he's been developing a set of rules with a creative community from you know all over the world for the last yeah. couple of years and I think you know, I, I guess I'm, when I'm trying to think about a trajectory for this, you like to try to frame this conversation, and I'm trying to think of the experience that you and Jacob have been describing. You know, you've come out of it's not necessarily you've 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 gone from science fiction or fantasy games workshop kind of gaming to historicals because there's some of that in your stories, but you know, Evan, you're you're describing basically a, a kind of a fantasy project in Ninth Age. And, and, you know, James and I are just as happy playing Tolkien-esque battles as we are playing Napoleonic's battles. So it's not, it's not just grown-ups play historicals, but there's something, there's something I think about the evolution from a kind of a canned tin system, the sort of experience that Games Workshop or, or other kind of large, you know, kind of systems provide you where when you're starting off in the hobby, you know, you just want a, one box that has everything you need to play a game, right? And then... Yeah getting to the point where you can like say no i this is the world i want to create this is this is the feel of the rules that i want to create i'm going to build a community with other people and uh you know it's it's becomes more of a creative thing is that is that fair to say that that's kind of your your stories guys yeah jacob i'll let i mean i'll let you go first um no you go ahead Evan. okay <laughs> I, I was just gonna say i mean the number one thing for me is i didn't get into games workshop games because they were the best on the market i didn't get into games workshop games because they were the best product for my needs as a consumer i didn't get into any of it for any other reason than the fact that it was accessible right yeah and when you're 10 13 years old whatever it was that me and my my group of friends were over that time is you don't like you know if there wasn't that big starter set to start with and there was just a wall of blister packs and then books upon books upon books upon books you look at it and you're just like what do, what the heck do i like 
where do I start? You literally need someone to hold your hand and do it. And that's the one thing that I have to admit that Kinshrop did extremely well was yeah. make the hobby accessible. Um, you can decry a lot of other tactics and, and decisions and business choices that they've done. That's fine. But when the thing they did is they basically took this massive, confusing hobby that probably, you know, like, you know, like what you guys described with the Airfix generation of trying to, you know, all these different things, all these different options that you can do, which is cool. But they told it and said, listen, start with this. Mm -hmm. This yeah. is, this is your, you know, when in doubt, buy this. Right. And, and having that is a huge, huge thing for getting people in as a product. I mean, my day-to-day -day job is in sales and marketing. So like, I understand it from that side of things. Um, is it, it condenses things down to a really simple point. And I think that's also probably, I mean, Jacob, from what you said, that kind of yeah. would probably be the reason why you got into theirs. It wasn't because it was what you wanted, but it was, it was what yeah. was there. Yeah. 40K was what was there. And my, my thoughts pretty much echo yours. Like the reason that uh, Flames of War and Bolt Action are such great segues towards historical wargaming, in my opinion, is because they have the two-player starter sets. They make it easy. Like if you take a look at the, the Flames of War rule books, now I haven't played since third edition, so my copies are not the newest, but the third edition, they had how to paint your figures in there. They tell you exactly what paints to buy so that you don't have to worry about other historical war gamers telling you you got the colors wrong because you can't <laughs> buy the book. Um, so, so, so they take out some of the... Uh, things that could cause anxiety to a new player and make it easier. And the two-player starter sets, I think, in my opinion, are somewhat key to get new players into the hobby. And then once they get, well, they're already in the hobby if they're playing Warhammer, but towards the historical side. And from there, then you can get them going, I want to do some more research. I want to figure out my own colors, my own paint schemes for a different war that Oh, wouldn't it be like neat to play World War One or something like that? But I think as a funnel, I, maybe it's not the right word, but going from the sci-fi and fantasy games over to historicals, the single single game in a box makes it a lot easier and less intimidating for new players. And the guys at Little Wars TV, they've been doing a bunch of work, and the, and I. I haven't gone through too much through it, but I, it is stuff like I watch all sorts of companies and all sorts of uh, people and products that are coming out because that's that's what interests me. I like seeing all the shiny new things and yeah. all of it interests me, <laughs> all of it. Um, so so, so they have the free game uh, called Ravenfest, uh, which, or Ravenfeast, uh, which is, uh, I think it's a Viking type game, but they also recently set out a new historical um, starter set game called Tombstone Tinderbox. Yes. Yeah, yeah. And for cool. 55 American dollars, it'll get you 15 millimeter uh, miniatures, which are cowboys. Uh, you get 18 of that in there and some terrain. And you can start playing a historical cowboys game if you want. But I think they have it right that, that getting two player starter sets makes it a lot easier than just wondering, what do I get to, to get into this game? And same with the people at uh, Firelock Games. 
Um, right now, if you want to get in on Blood and Plunder, you have to look at which factions do I want to play. You get the rule book, which has all the factions in it, but you have to choose, do I want to play English or Spanish or French? And do you know what's better? Not necessarily, but in, they just did a Kickstarter that should be coming out later, I think next year. Um, it keeps getting delayed, but the this it's going to be a two-player starter box with plastic miniatures that you can play 28 millimeter pirate games with and it actually comes with two plastic ships wow yeah Mm -hmm. Yeah, the ships have always been the big um like just before i shut down the web store i was Mm -hmm. going to start you know stalking pirates Mm -hmm. and i was you know like agonizing okay well which which you know things do i not restock and then invest that money into this massive resin pirate ship, <laughs> you know, which would which would have been a big chunk of cash yeah. sitting on the shelf until somebody finally bought it. But yeah, plastic ship that would be amazing. Yeah. Yep the the new set will have two sloops in it, and I think you can build them as two different variants. Nice. So is is you know the approximate size of the ships? Not necessarily. Um, they're probably similar to the like it's stuff that you could look up on the web. Um, yeah, it's 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 scaled for twenty eight millimeter, but their twenty eight millimeter, in all honesty, is closer to thirty two. Mm. <laughs> you know, everyone <laughs> has their own scale, and they say it's twenty eight mil, but their figures, when you measure them, are closer to thirty two. Right. Plastic pirates sounds pretty fun, Mike. No, no, I I keep telling myself no more new scales, no more. Yeah, and I'm the guy who just started painting fifteen millimeter biblical. Uh, ancient, so what? Oh, yeah. Just a DB, just a couple of DBA armies. I had to, uh, I had to intentionally, um, after after I got exposed to all the different things that are out there with Hotlet, I, I have intentionally narrowed myself down to a couple of different things, and so I, I've I've told myself I'm going to do for my Black Powder era. I'm doing 15 millimeter American War of Independence. Mm-hmm. That that's it. No Civil War, no Napoleonics. Ugh. 15 mil, 15 millimeter American War of Independence. You're still young. Well, that's. <laughs> There's that. I, I imagine I'm going to turn 50, and then all of a sudden it's just going to be Napoleonics everywhere. Right. Yeah, it's just like something that's just true. happens in your brain. That's <laughs> right. <laughs> the Battle of Borodino. Yeah. And you'll get you'll get Evan. You'll get really tedious about Napoleonics. You'll you'll get really tedious about high end bourbon and how to barbecue. All these all these things happen to you, and yeah, get also, there's a smoker in my backyard. I don't know why that where that even came from. Yeah. Um, <laughs> um, I'm going to do, uh, you know, I like 28 millimeter for for World War II as much as some of the other stuff you can get into is really cool at the other at the smaller scales with like the six millimeter or the 15. You know, I I, I do think World War II is really good at that quintessential squad level combat. Um, that said, I've bought more than I care to mention of 172nd scale or 20 millimeter Vietnam stuff after Charlie Company got me into that. But I've actually kind of drifted away from Charlie Company just because of um, the need for a GM. And more towards uh, uh, force on force. Mm. Uh, from Contact front is also good. Yeah, yeah. So um, I went down that route, and then I said, "Nope." For nineteen eighties Cold War Gone Hot, I want to do that in micro armor. Yeah, and then um, anything for like modern combat, uh, just because of I love the full battle rattle minis. I said, "Okay, I'll do I'll do nice. those in twenty eight because yeah. they're just freaking gorgeous minis." I've like. 
there's a kind of mini that I'll sit there and I'll look at it unpainted, pure metal, and I'll just be like, "You're too pretty for for my hand. I can't. I can't do this. Yeah. <laughs> I'm not worthy." <laughs> yeah, I'll just I'll just sit there on the shelf and be like, "One day I'm gonna be good enough to do this." Yeah. But for yeah. now, I'll go back to those mono pose plastics. <laughs> yeah, we're we're hoping to talk to him at some point. The full yeah. metal round guy. It's yeah. funny. I just a little aside. I I've always thought that Charlie Company is kind of like the historical equivalent of call of cthulhu because you've got one gm who's like you know got a bunch of griblies lurking in the shadows then you've got a bunch of crazed players who are all just waiting for something to jump out of the shadows and attack them and and don't get wrong i like the game but i think from uh um trying to get uninitiated people or people who aren't maybe you know really into the setting playing with me which is basically what my life is at this stage yeah you know gaming groups happen and then everybody moves away and then you move and they yeah. move and you know yeah. so in the ability to try and find opponents and people to play with quickly i feel like something like a force on forces it's like someone could wrap their mind around it a lot faster yeah um and that's kind of the the stance i've taken with a lot of this stuff is um which touches actually on what what jacob said is by the opposing force you know if you want to do if you want to do a game you've got to buy both sides um yeah and things like a starter set are fantastic for that because that means okay you want to do this blood and plunder pirate game that's awesome but someone may want to play with you but they may not want to invest in it and so having that means you can build the starter set you can build both sides and you can get someone to play with you and the more i thought about the more i'm like that's that's literally how i got started because when i got that warhammer starter set i painted out the the knights and the lizardmen but i got whoever i could to play the opposing side even if they had no interest in the game you know i remember um when i was like 13 one of my sister her boyfriend at the time humored me and played a few games with me and it just like was it was whoever i could literally rope into playing with me (laughs) but by having that opposing side i mean those were key games in my early days in the hobby because it meant i had someone to do something with yeah none of my other friends had been roped into it yet no one else was really really into it yet you know i was you know it was my friend's little brother who at the time the age difference was still you know 13 to 11 years old you're like i don't want to play with that kid (laughs) (laughs) never mind the fact that like we you know like became like best friends alongside with his brother later on but that's you know that's how things go when you have that box set with everything self-contained it just makes so much yeah. more sense to get more people in. everything becomes easier and that's always i think um something that some of these other lesser known games have an issue with the downside to that as we've discovered trying to figure this out with the ninth age is um logistics and and the marketing side of things is not only do you have to have this box set you've got to make sure people are aware of it and when yeah. you're not even what doing what we're doing on on less than a shoestring budget, but when you know you're looking at guys like Osprey to put together a box set with two sides in it with miniatures and rules and counters and everything else like this this is even if you get everything made overseas it is not cheap to produce it is a really hard thing to do so we've been looking at actually different ways of doing that with with the ninth age project um, since we make rules but no miniatures it's a complete miniature agnostic game what we've actually come up with is um there's a group basically that's in a public alpha right now i can actually post the link for you right now and what this is is um a slimmed down very basic version of the rule so we take like our large very in-depth rule set that's over 100 pages and condense it down to literally 30 pages this is you figure this out you've got the foundations of how the games works as far as its movement mechanics combat this has the basics 
pre-made lists. The orc army, for example, is a is an orc spellcaster. Twenty goblins, twenty orcs, mm-hmm. and five goblins on wolves. It tells you what bases, what base size they need to fit on. Everything that's there, that's it. That is your force. You can use whatever you want to make this work. And then on top of that, what we had is actually someone created a bunch of print and play papercraft miniatures mm-hmm. for free download. Nice. So literally, if you want to do this or you want to play with your six-year-old kid who you barely trust with glue, let alone your your models, you can just like print them out, cut them out, glue them together. You can play with them if you know, like the two-year-old eats it. Whatever. (laughs) It's it's about okay. How do we make things accessible? How do we make them convenient? How do we lower that barrier of entry as much as we can? And this is stuff that I think that other gaming communities could really learn by is 2D paper miniatures. A lot of people, you know, put their nose down on it, but like it massively increases the accessibility of just trying the hobby. Sure. You know? and, and some of the 2D stuff that's out there is gorgeous, like gorgeous artwork. There's, yeah. there's I think, one entire set of uh, stuff that's all, I think, Peter Dennis artwork that i can't remember someone's done um the guy who does a lot of the covers for um uh osprey yes yeah and there's like there's this you can buy his stuff as 2d miniatures for like uh, 1066 like it's it's gorgeous gorgeous miniatures in paper and if anybody's gonna put their nose down on it then you know it's just like okay well find me another way to grow the hobby when there's uh to make things that accessible to make them you know near as free as possible Mm-hmm. You I, mean, I, I was just looking at it when I was briefly playing around with doing naval games in the Pacific. There's a oh, company, can you remember the name? But he does like nice top down ship graphics, and you can get the entire Imperial Japanese Navy in color for $55. Yep. At which, and there's like four different scales you, you can, you but you buy the the pdf file and you print it out yourself and and there you go it's it's like it's a lot cheaper than buying all the the uh ships and then having to paint them but yeah that that um that the whole turnkey aspect has certainly really helped yeah bolt action and yep. flames of war take off and so just you know trying to trying to get your friendly local game store to actually stock bolt action and flames of war and blood and plunder so that kids know that there's these cool historical things and not just, you know, space Marines. So I know that, um, uh, the guys who do flames of war, I can't remember the company that's behind it. Battlefront, battlefront yes. miniatures. I know there's, uh, just cause I heard him on another podcast. Uh, there's a former GW sales manager running their entire sales team. Battle mm-hmm. So there's that warlord, all X GW. So, yeah. You know, why do these games have such good accessible content for beginner players? Is because well they they worked at the company that pioneered it in the industry. Yeah, I know. That. So you know it just there's it works for a reason, and if you have the resources for it, go for it. But yeah, John Stallard. Yeah, John Stallard, who you know started Warlord. He's got a lot of money. <laughs> <laughs> Whereas you know, like I I have had people you know I have trying to talk with people going oh why don't you know companies do more starter sets it's like well they do you look at the essex catalog right yeah. essex miniatures and all these nice dba starter packs yeah. whole army in a bag boom 20 bucks other companies all do you know there are other companies that jump in and do starter packs you know gripping beast has saga starter packs yeah. you know it depends on the rule set depends on the company if they've got figures that will that will they'll match it's just it's hard to get them out there you know, into the stores where 
you know, Timmy, who's, you know, he's just watched Vikings on TV and he thinks that's really cool. And he's, oh, oh, there's nothing here. You know, or is it, nope. yeah. The, the, the well, there's, a, there's Warhammer, which kind of has Vikings, kind of ish. Kind of. But, <laughs> yeah, you know, if, that, if that's, but that's accessible and he'll buy it because it's what's there. It's, that's right. Because the storekeeper doesn't know about Saga and to buy a starter pack from Gripping Beast or his distributor who may or may not carry Gripping Beast. Because you're or, it's just a risk, or it's just a risk that he's not willing to take. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Me yeah. debating over how many pirates should I, should I spend my capital on and how quickly will they sell? Or should I just buy more germ, you know, World War II bolt action figures? I, th- I think, too, a lot of it depends not upon what a, a beginner sees in a store, because let's face it, there are fewer and fewer stores, but rather what the beginner sees people playing with. Yes, so yeah. so a case in point, my son, John, who's, uh, he doesn't mind being named. Hey, John. Uh, Hi, John. <laughs> John's 27, and he was out from BC for, the, for August, and he got really jazzed on Napoleonics because he played it with his old man, and then he came over with me to uh, hang out in James' basement, which I wouldn't wish on anybody. And uh, <laughs> so, you know, like like three days later, he's got total religion on Napoleonics wargaming. <laughs> and so, you know, and the funny thing was, he he told me uh, uh, he took some pictures like that James that game that we were playing that sharp practice game with Scott. It was a pretty good looking, pretty good looking game. Scott has like more figures than Napoleon. He has, actually had soldiers. Pretty much, yeah. So John is taking John is taking pictures and he's sending them to his friends back in BC who are all all gamers but they're all kind of like you know RPG and Warhammer and and whatever and their response was that's cool it's super nerdy but it's cool <laughs> but for some reason that that connection clicked in my in my son's brain maybe because he's my son and he's a weirdo like I am and so to nurture the flame, I ordered uh, a Napoleonics box starter set, and I totally agree with what Jacob and Evan are saying about how starter sets rule if you're trying to get someone going. Uh, so he's every two days he sends me pictures of, uh, of, and his painting is really, really good, but he's got most of the British line infantry done, and he's looking, he's looking online for uh, Napoleonic French uniforms, and he wants to start the French. And then he's, he has this idea that he's going to... Uh, go to his friendly local gaming store in uh, Nanaimo called Drop Zone, and he's going to try to spread the gospel of Napoleonic Wargaming. And I'm like, you, you go for it, kid. Yeah. Well, <laughs> I wish him luck. I don't know where he, I don't know where he got that zeal from, but that's, that's what he wants look to at do. What you see, look at that club at U of T, though. Right? Um, that, that, that the stuff that they're posting on Facebook is absolutely amazing because they're getting as the, the one lady there, I think her name's Cynthia, who posts a lot of their pictures, is a lot of people who are in there, they're not even from a, a historical or even a wargaming background. Yeah. There's a lot of, they've just, what they're doing, they've, they've, they've figured something out. And if you can get them on your podcast, like, I want to know what their formula is, because they've got something sorted out, because they're Sorry. able to draw in. Evan, what's yeah. the name of that group? Can you help me out? Um, I'll, see, I'll see if I can find it. Um, okay. She posts, she posts on the Hot Leg group every once in a while. Yeah. Um, they were set to come down to run a game 2020 before the world ended and right. <laughs> um yeah. but they they posted a few things from, it's it's like the uft wargaming club or something like that i'll look it up they've done some massive blucher or uh age of reason stuff and like 
and she's saying like a lot of the people that are playing it they don't even have a wargaming background but it is you know you show it to them and people and a lot of people are going to be like i never knew this existed that is cool and the great thing about this time and age is that you can do something that's super nerdy and still be cool right right <laughs> and you know you yeah. don't have to hide it in shame like i'll yeah. go to a sales meeting and people like say something interesting about something like i play games with toy soldiers yeah it's awesome <laughs> <laughs> and people kind of give me a side i'm like whatever i'm i don't yeah. care yeah <laughs> like, i spend too much of my money on this to hide it so i'm just yeah sure. right. let, your, let your flag fly proud man <laughs> yeah that's right you could you could just you could just easily say I, I dress up as a chipmunk and go to furry conventions and yeah people yeah, go but, whatever uh, that's uh, good yeah. That's still pretty weird. We, we don't kink shame here. <laughs> <laughs> we, we don't judge on this podcast. I've I've been in the I, I've been in my union newsletter talking about my war games. Yeah, and, and that's the thing. I think that's that's something. And by putting it out there, and and you know, like Jacob, like what you're doing with with yeah. posting your own blog and just being like, hey, this is it. Shh, yeah. like this is this is this cool thing that I do. Um, yeah. Spreading the word of the hobby is is essential yeah. yeah and when people ask me what what i do for fun i, I direct them right to my website must yeah. contain minis and yeah they, the first thing they usually ask is you painted that <laughs> and yeah. it's either either yes or a friend of mine did <laughs> yeah yeah, and yeah. Jake, jacob what i like about must contain minis is that you're all over the map i mean you're yes. you're so you're so eclectic that's that's a blessing and a curse because yeah. I think if I that's a curse for my just, wallet. Yeah. <laughs> but if I chose just to be bolt action or something like that, you'd have more repeats. Whereas uh, my visitors are mostly from Google looking looking something up, like I want to learn about you know this game, and they'll type in the game that they're searching for, and they'll come to my website. So, um, but yeah, I, my tastes are everywhere. I like it all. I want it all. <laughs> yeah <laughs> so it is um, it is hard to focus isn't it? it it is it is and i don't necessarily want to focus either even though i know it would probably be better for my website if i did you know if i said i'm miscontinuous and i'm a fl- uh, bolt action website which would probably get a lot of visits until bolt action you know the games come and go <laughs> One sure. probably wouldn't like me saying that but you know oh. well i remember um you know, about five years ago, the the, the bring and buy at Hot Lead suddenly started to get full of uh, Flames of War stuff, right? Yeah. It, it seemed like that, you know, that, that ran for about 10 years, and then people yeah. started, you know, getting tired of it. They wanted, they moved on to umpteen other new things. Well, to action. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Well, and, it, and it, yeah, it certainly caused a certain amount of discussion where, because, you know, for me, my World War II stuff started out Flames of War, just been playing different rules with the same kit oh yeah, yeah. you can totally you know, do that and yeah these guys that kind of have that 40k tournament mindset where it's like yeah. oh i'm not going to play this game anymore so i'm going to ditch yeah that. yeah I'm so you know, i'm not going to go play this other world war ii rules it's like but you just sold an army yeah so you know? we run into this all the time with with ninth age and you know we we designed the army specifically to be very easy for people to look at you know a warhammer fantasy collection and be like okay this is what i have i can use all of this not necessarily one-to-one but like you know like mm-hmm. this can count as pretty dang close to this that no one's going to cause a difference the only thing that we usually write in the rules to people is to like make sure whatever you have is identifiable don't have three guys with cross three units of, of guys armed with crossbows and one's a crossbow one's a spear unit one's a you know a great sword unit and 
but them all be represented by the same model. Like you don't do silly things like that. Make it so it's it's easy to kind of tell what is what, and otherwise rule of cool go with what you think is best but the biggest issue i see and, and i see this in a lot of warhammer groups after warhammer fantasy was killed is people were basically like okay well warhammer fantasy is over i guess i'm never going to play this game again and it's just like there's like eight editions of rules you could play not including these other projects people have done not including things like what's the rule set that you guys play your lord of the rings miniatures with or dragon yeah or oath mark right like like there's yeah. like you have this yeah. miniature collection there are dozens yeah. of accessible rule sets out there not including ones you probably already have on your shelf that you paid for that you can play with like just because the company doesn't make it anymore that's yeah. not don't let that yeah. stop you from having fun with your toy soldiers, people. <laughs> yeah, then, yeah, you know, you get that vid that, you, that video though that when uh, the guy setting fire to his goblin yeah. army, you know, it's like I'm that just one. Like, oh my god, you moron! Like, yeah, send them to me. I'll play with them. Never yeah. doubt someone willing yeah. to do something silly on the internet for rage clicks. Right. right. Yeah. He's like, oh look, I went viral. Well, good for you. Yeah. Yeah. You that's know. a marketing tip for you, Jacob, by the way. <laughs> get some people to click in to watch Mustang Miniatures. Yeah, just you know, light them up on the sacrificial altar and you'll get all the clicks. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Jake, Jacob, please, I don't know please if don't I can bring myself to do that. No, please don't burn your minis, Jacob. Yeah. Something cool. you don't like, you know, you're not happy with the paint job. Did video a, a big rant about the rules or whatever, and then you know, you don't you don't let them see the figure very closely so they know it's so they don't know it's your, you know burn some sprue no yeah. one's really going to notice you know some yeah. stick figures yeah i yeah. <laughs> i just want to ask you guys a question quickly about tournaments um yeah. jacob before we started you said you'd started off in tournaments but you you'd kind oh, of uh, like my, my you, miniature hobby before getting into muskington minis it was more focused so um, after I got into USX Modern Day Heroes and basically just collected and painted, I played it a couple times, but I went into Flames of War and that was my only game for a year and a half, two years. That was the only game I played. And I went to tournaments and when I during that time period, if I wanted to watch a battle report, I would want to watch the long form. This is what we did every single turn. And I would analyze what they did, see what they did, and see how it could help me in my tournament playing. <laughs> but then, um, now that I'm into all sorts of games, I'd rather just watch someone's battle report that is brief and tells a story. Yeah, yeah. What about you, Evan? Are you tournaments pro or con? It depends. I'll give the waffle answer. Uh, <laughs> so I never did tournament gaming, like, the whole... 10 15 years that i played warhammer uh with my friends like we we were we played picked up the rules we bought miniatures we played in a basement um we we played in a game store occasionally when we were younger when we didn't have dedicated game spaces but as we got older and we figured that stuff out we, we switched to playing in, in our basements and just having you know it was the quintessential beer and pretzels games yeah we were playing games workshop games but we were playing beer and pretzels scenarios like yeah that sounds like a fun run to do the first tournament I, I knew of of tournaments out there but i didn't really like pay much attention to them and then um there used to be a big 40k tournament in cambridge and it was a big team tournament so the way a team tournament is is basically you you have your group of people together and then there's a before match there's a pairing where you basically try and match people off against who they think will be better so 
it was a team tournament so me and my buddies were like you know what it's the four of us that usually play together let's just sign up this is like whatever like it's we don't get to play that much it's five games in a weekend more than anything it was an excuse to play five games in a weekend with people we don't normally play against love the concept absolutely hated competitive warhammer 40k absolutely hated it i was i, I rolled up to him like i know my army is not that great but like there was games where i'm just like it's not worth my time to even put them on the table there is no hope in hell of me even coming close to winning i won an entire game i didn't kill an opposing model not not a single guy i'm like this is just oh you can break the rules that badly okay mm-hmm. um and that's where your your, your quintessential you know back player win at all cost player kind of came in and it's not that the players were bad a lot of them are really nice people it's just they knew how to game the system and that put me off tournament gaming for that system but what i did look into more was okay well how do other systems do it and that's you know for example would i go to a bolt action tournament probably why because you don't have things like psychic powers that can like completely alter the game in world war ii that would just be you know like it's historical tournaments i think probably are better for me as a player because of the less swinginess that's there there are yeah there are the limits of, of the history constraining thing right like you can't just like roll up and be like okay i'm paying 500 points and i'm gonna hiroshima you and it's just like what but that's the thing <laughs> in warhammer is you can basically be like yeah you know what i'm just gonna bring down a comet onto you and just destroy your force maybe if i roll really high you know and, and things like that and some people like that kind of tournament game i personally don't my preference is more towards what we do on the tabletop and what we do with the and what the dice roll let that be the deciding factor not the list that we built not the latest and greatest book to be released or whatever it is you know it's not a pay to play it's this is it i think that's you know personally i would probably like a game like dba for the same reason is it's you know it's it's basically chess but without the grid you know it's it's like a more fluid version of chess in that sense that it's a very hyper balanced game that's one thing that we actually really strive for with Ninth Age is how do we keep all this tactical depth that people are used to from the style of game without things being ridiculously broken? And that's one thing that we actually got a lot of criticism from is people who wanted that kind of broken game. We don't have that. It's, you know, the 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 gap between one side winning, one side losing is usually your skill as a player. Mm-hmm. So it has a lot of that player skill complexity um without it basically being like yeah well i just bought the newest thing and it's going to kick butt so deal with it right and that's what i've always liked yeah thanks guys this this may be a, a dumb question but is there a is there a generational aspect to tournament play like or is it something that younger people generally gravitate to or is that a, a dumb question i don't think it's a dumb question jacob i mean your experience with yeah. my, my experience is that when you're you're in the stores um some of the ones that do warhammer they'll encourage you to go the tournament route but with the other games there wasn't so much that like when i was playing flames of war or bolt action there there is some tournament aspect to it but it's not as big as with warhammer i mean ninth age has it because it was born out of tournament players and a tournament scene in europe um, right the the big tournament in Europe is the ETC, which is like the, the year before COVID they held it. They held it in a, in a basketball arena in wow. I think it was Croatia or Serbia. I can't remember. It was in the former Yugoslavia, um, and um, it was like the 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 three games that they played was this massive several hundred people player 40k tournament. 
the large ninth age tournament, which was again several hundred people, is it's nine player teams from all over the world, and then there was a Flames of War tournament, is the third one that's at the ETC, and you know like they took up this entire, it's essentially like it would it would be like filling out like the the Labatt Center I, or yeah, it would basically be like renting something that size out, right, it, right for a tournament. Right. Um, yeah. It was it was rather large, so you can have people from like and that's you know there's a historical game right up there with it with yeah. everything else so it's it's not historical and i don't think it's necessarily generational because I've, I've got old game workshop books from the 90s that show people playing warhammer tournaments who are now probably about the same age as you guys yeah. um but are they still playing tournaments with you though i think I, you know they might they might not i think it, i think what it might be is not a generational thing i think what makes tournaments attractive for certain people is that like i said it's an excuse to cram five games in a weekend yeah so many games when you only have so many free weekends a year you want to cram as much in so much like going to a convention you be you know the uk is blessed with conventions every weekend practically in a non-covid world yeah. we don't necessarily have it here but you could probably find some sort of a tournament event for some of these more mainstream games yeah. most most weekends or at least once a month all throughout southern ontario yeah certainly i was um knew a fellow who he and his son were heavily into x-wing and it seemed like every weekend or three weekends of the month they were somewhere playing x-wing it's kind of like kind of like hockey only not as athletic <laughs> you don't want to see me skate no <laughs> you're staying in different crappy hotels all over ontario <laughs> playing x-wing that's right yeah yeah, I, I, I know guys in England who are, um, you know, ancients gamers, and they there's a successor to DBA called uh, Art de la Guerra, which is a European rule set, which is very, very much a list game and very popular in the tournament scene. And these are guys who are going from England to Spain and Italy, so they're obviously, you know, people who can afford to do that. So it's not just generational. But I think there is a kind of like there are two schools of thought. There's, you know, it's only fun if you've got lists and you've got points and you can have tournaments versus lists are bad because they encourage a historical play and you, you need a game that's rooted in history and it's modeled on an actual historical incident. That's, you're just playing it for the love of the simulation. And I guess those are just two poles within the hobby, right? They're, they're not necessarily generational. Well, I, and some something that I've I've heard about um, you know, advocates for that sort is, you know, the list the list creation. It allows you to engage with your hobby when you're not at the table pushing soldiers around, right? You're at work pushing your button, doing your thing, and you're thinking about, oh, you know, like, is it worth getting the, you know, extra heavy cavalry with GPMG? Or should I have said, you know, use those points to get two two elements of spearmen? Yeah. You know, you and I, we're thinking about, well, how should I paint my next unit of fusiliers? 100%. I mean, that's that's basically why I gravitate, I think, to list-based gaming is because I just like making lists. I'm garbage at it. I, I make <laughs> terrible lists. Um, but it's, 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 but you can make, you can do list building and you can make it you know, either historical or fluffy or whatever you don't want to call it to to be fun. And like, um, you know, I, I looked up one for, as an example, for one of the Ninth Age armies that I play. And I was just like, this is just how I think the army should work. 
it's like you compare it to what everybody else is running at the big tournaments, and I don't have any of the stuff that's supposedly good. But I'm like, yeah, but this is the stuff that I think is cool. It's yeah. probably not very good, <laughs> and I'm not a very good player, but this that's... is cool. And if you look at a lot of discussions on things like Bell of Lost Souls, I'm sure Jacob, you see it all the time. There is, you know, a huge chunk of it is people being like, "What do you think of this unit?" And it's it's discussion about the list side of the game and you know and the joke of, with warhammer is that you know warhammer is a list making game that happens to have miniatures <laughs> yeah yeah and and I, I totally agree with you like like i i part of my you know when i see you know, i'm i'm well looking at a, a fantasy range of figures is they always try and every army has you know a mounted unit every army has an artillery you know um war engine unit every army has like a big monster unit and they they do some really weird things to try and cram these into you know a concept that shouldn't really have that you know so you end up with like halflings on dogs or goats um you end up with dwarves riding boars and it's just like oh my god like just no <laughs> Like, stop it. Elves you know, riding reindeers. Oh, wait a minute. That's a Peter Jackson movie. Sorry. Yeah, and that is hot garbage, and we won't talk about that ever again. <laughs> um, I Well, I could divert things with a half-hour rant on why the Hobbit movies are terrible. Please whatever. don't. Please don't. I'm begging you. Alright, I'll stand down. But, you know, and, and you know, like the, the whole, you know, Warhammer fantasy um, half uh, halflings with the... Um, the slingshot with the soup with the soup pot as their war engine. Remember that? Don't yeah. just the halfling hot pot. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Like just you know, okay, it's a, it's a ridiculous thing, and people like it for fart for shits and giggles. But you know, it's like uh, I don't know. But I think that's one you of the things that it, makes the hobby good is is there's literally something there for literally everyone. Yeah, um, exactly. You don't have to take the hot pot if you don't like no. it. And you don't even have to play Warhammer if you don't like it. You can play, there's how many thousands of other fantasy games? Well, thousands, but exactly. hundreds probably other fantasy games. And much to, like I said before, Jacob, that's the one problem with your blog is you're just like keep showing me all these other things and doing yeah. all these deep dives into them. And I'm like, I, yeah. I can't add another one to the shelf. I'm I literally really buying them from you. <laughs> Yeah, the the, yeah. the the shirt I the shirt I saw at Historicon guy going through the it was like no new scales, no new periods, no new scales, no new periods, no new scales, no new periods. Oh look, six millimeter cavemen. Yeah. Yeah, I'm pretty sure you probably get that to bring and buy that you're on too, James. <laughs> People going around, not gonna get into this, I'm not gonna get into this, and then they got a whole bunch of Napoleonics or World War One in their truck. Yeah, <laughs> they got it cheap. So yeah. my, my Napoleonic started with a $10 investment in a bag of secondhand lead. You, nice. you know how I, I, I told you that I, I set all these scales aside earlier of, you know, I'm going to do the setting in this scale, the setting in this scale, and that's it. Um, the Game Chamber in London had their bring and buy garage sale oh, a little yes. while ago. And I just wanted to maybe think I'll, I'll pick up some some old out of print Warhammer models for, for my ninth age stuff for, you know, just see what's there for, for cheap. See what's there. Yeah, yeah. I walked out with a box of um, ancient Greek Persian War, like like Alexander era, twenty five millimeter Ralpartha Persians and Greeks, because it was forty dollars nice. for a box that must have weighed a hundred pounds. Nice. <laughs> I'm like, I can't say no. 
like right. this is just not going to get sold if I don't walk away with it. So I have to dig it. So now I have that, and I have no idea what I'm going to do with it. But I'll it's, like, it it's like seeing a kitten. You just oh, I have to look after that. I've got to take it at home. So cute. You yeah. they're, they're probably based. Are, are they all based on like 60 millimeter elements? No, they're actually uh, looks like they're 25 by 50 millimeter bases. Oh. Yeah. I don't know. I mean, you know I'll, think, I'll, I'll find them a home. I'm sure. Yeah, if, <laughs> if, if they're a, a consistent frontage, you could always display uh, the DBM or the Mike. The rules you mentioned. Art de la guerre. Art de la guerre. Yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. But that's yeah. the thing, right? Is you know, I've got these models. There's how many rules out there? I'm sure I can find something. That Hail I like, Caesar. That I can play with it. I've got Hail yeah, Caesar. That's true. Yeah. There you go. So we're uh, we've we've been at this for almost an hour, and it's been great fun. I just wanted to start wrapping up I, i'm going to save the the most cliched question for the last so a little bit of background i i work in a church and in the church uh, because the church is mostly an institution run by old people one of the things you often hear is where are the young people how are we going to attract the young people and you know what when certain people in the wargaming hobby get together what do you hear where are the young people oh how are we going to attract the young people after um, every hot lead yeah and well, that's partly because the core people at Hotlight have all been going for like 20 plus years. And, you know, it's James and I don't look older, but they do. I don't know what's going on. With yeah, that. So do you guys have any thoughts about that? Is that is that again? Is that just like, should we older people just forget it, forget the angst and let go of it and just enjoy the fact that, you know, younger people are finding their way into the hobby via all sorts of different routes? I think that younger people are still finding their way into the hobby, but the, the way that they're finding their way in may be different. And not only that, but the aspects of the hobby that they may enjoy might be different than the aspects that you or I enjoy. For example, when we're talking about how the these all-in-one, one-player or two-player starter kits are a nice way for people to get into the wargaming, a lot of wargamers in the past this is my opinion here, so correct me if I'm wrong, but they really enjoyed doing the research of the historical units, painting them up like the regiments and, and doing that. And for the young people, I think that's something they might get into as they get older, but to start, they just want to play with the toy soldiers in, in the historical period that they're interested in. So they're, they're kind of focusing in on that. And Personally, from my side, I think that the way to get more people in who are younger is more through skirmish games and also low, low model count games. So I see that in the Ninth Age, Evan has uh, or Evan's group has made it so you can start with a patrol band that's smaller and then grow your game from there. So I think that's kind of a way to get them in is to, with lower model count skirmish games. And then from there, they can grow into the hobby. So I don't think you have to worry about people or the hobby dying off, but it might be a little different. Yeah, exactly. You're just doing it differently from what grumpy old farts from the Airfax <laughs> generation do it. Um, the way, we, again, we, we, you know, a lot of these are conversations that we've had. Um, over at Ninth Age, because you know, like people were used to the size of the player base and the size of the community that's out there, uh, that it used to exist for Warhammer Fantasy, which was essentially the second largest game in the market. And it's taken a lot for some people to realize we're just not going to ever be that. It's just not going to happen. But there's things that we can do to still grow 
the hobby and introduce people who are completely new to the hobby in general to people who are maybe, you know, they used to play different games, whether it's a, a game, first up game or, you know, like your situation where they had a, a relative or a parent who played it and they were like, oh yeah, that's cool. I remember doing that as a kid. And yeah, I'd get, you know, I'd be interested in doing it. And the one thing that we keep telling people is no one's going to come from above. This is, this isn't going to be solved by anybody else. If you want people to play your game, your setting, your genre, what have you, you have to roll your sleeves up and do it yourself. And it's a lot of work. It takes a lot of work. When I started playing Ninth Age in the London, Ontario area a few years ago, when I first got into it, before I even got into the being a, one of the volunteers on staff, it was me and one other person. There's two of us. Uh, he then moved to BC. <laughs> there was luckily another gentleman. Um, he was out east. He moved back to London. He, had, he he was out east for a while, and he then moved back. And he and I got playing, and we just slowly grew things from there. Luckily, now with a lot of work, we actually started um, in August a what they call a slow grow, which is basically paint up a unit, a squad, what have you, a month, the equivalent of basically ten to twenty models per month. You know, and post your progress, and then we'll meet up after two months and play a game in person. Hopefully, COVID pending, um, be allowed to do that. But this was an initiative taken on by one of the other people who's coming to the group, and we have, over, I think, over twenty people signed up for it. Wow. But it took a lot of work and years of organizing to get there. Yeah. So if you're wondering why no one's playing twenty millimeter American Civil War, well, you got to get out there and show it. And you got to get out there and do the work of showing people how much fun this game is, this miniatures are, this scale is, this hobby in general. If you're not willing to go out there and, and get people to, one, be aware of it, two, show them how much fun it is, three, maybe show a store that it's worthwhile to let them play there, all the stuff that you, you need to do to get out there and play and, and to grow it. If you're not willing to do it, why do you expect someone else to be willing to drop hundreds to thousands of dollars over their their lifetime to do it if you're not willing to even just show them what the what the game is like you, you've it's a lot of hard work and it and oh. it's there's no shortcuts you've you've just you've got to spend the time organizing things yeah i think that evan's 100 percent right on that if you want other people to be playing your game whether it's ninth age or bolt action or blood and plunder or anything you have to basically buy two starter sets or two Two forces yourself, get out to the stores, get out to the conventions and play these games in front of other people just to show them that these games exist and also to give them a chance to try to see if it's something they want to buy into, um, which is one of the things that I absolutely love about conventions, even though COVID has taken them out of the water for now. Um, when you get to these conventions, like what you run, James, you get to go there and you get to try all these wonderful brand new games that you wouldn't have played otherwise. And I think that is the best place to get people into the hobby is to get them to try your game. And once they try it, they can decide if they want to buy in or not. And if you have two sets of miniatures, you can play with anyone. Just find someone else that will play with you and you can play that way. And then also there's other groups that we can watch. I don't know if you know Barnaby Orr from the Hamilton Tabletop Gaming Society. Oh, yeah. Yep. 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 
Yeah, his group is very active, and um, I believe him and his kid um, actually go out to different conventions that aren't necessarily gaming-related, and they'll show the miniatures games out there, um, so like some like Comic-Con or something like that. Mm-hmm. So getting it out in front of more people and just showing them that these games exist can spark someone's interest in them, and you never know, even though that they saw it and they might not have bought it on the day that they played it. They might come back weeks or years later and buy into a gaming system because they played your game. Yeah. And, and it is, yeah, sometimes it is years later, like um, just contacted by someone who had been hoping to come to hot lead, but you know, COVID and he had gotten, I think it was bolt action as something to do with his son. And then his son got older and discovered girls and, didn't want to do it yeah but he's like you know actually putting these things together and painting them is kind of fun and so he's gotten a whole hobby and when he's you know when he's facing being an empty nester that's something else like you know you guys are young you know you're 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 yeah. jacob you're 40s. young mm-hmm. <laughs> 40s oh okay yeah you're that old you, you moisture <laughs> well. you look a lot younger yeah Great complexion. Um, yeah, <laughs> and and Evan, you know, you've got you've got a, a toddler and another yeah. one on the way. So that's going to yep. be, you know, you're going to be stupid busy for like the next twenty years, right? Yeah. So like you're you're getting away for your one we, one weekend to play Ninth Age is yep. you know could be about it. I got to book it six weeks in advance if I'm lucky. Yeah. Yeah. And 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 you could have a you know like I remember when. My children were little. There were some Friday nights on game club night when it was like no one's leaving here without a baby, <laughs> and and so it's like all right, taking the baby to to the club, and it's like James, it's your turn. Hand off the baby, you know, um, <laughs> and that and that was something else Elizabeth and I noticed at Hot Lad before COVID was there were guys coming back, yes, who you know yeah. they had been a war gamer twenty years ago. And now the kids are, they're done, they're mm-hmm. empty nesters, and they, they've got time for themselves, and they're, and they're coming back into it. Yeah, that, which, you know, you never, you never know when you're going to have time to, to dedicate to the hobby, and it, there are ebbs and cycles. I think the, the interesting thing about people like Barnaby, again, to bring this back to my world, the church, is that they're what I, they're what I would call evangelists, right? They're, yeah. they're fearless about going out and saying, this is a cool thing that I do, and check it out. It you might like it as well, right? I, I, if there's a flaw with a lot of older people, I, I think it's that they get really set in their ways. They they say, you know, the, the, I've used these Napoleonic rolls for twenty years, twenty five years. They're fine. You know, I only buy my figures from old minifigs or something like that, right? And they're good enough for me, and I'm not going to buy anything else, and I'm just going to play with my same two or three old friends, or maybe I'll just collect figures in my basement. And then eventually they die, and somebody throws out all their shit because nobody else knows what to do with it, right? It's a sad and pathetic way to end your life. But I think that's that's a feeling. That's, well, there you go. But, but enough about me. <laughs> But I think I think that's a flaw that older people, older gamers can fall into sometimes too, right? It takes, it takes some hustle. As you, I like what Evan said about rolling up your sleeves and getting out there and spreading the news about the hobbies. So yeah, right. I mean, 
I, like I posted in chat is, is, you know, my experience is this as a, as a younger gamer getting into the wide world of historical wargaming and my experiences when I attended the United Church of Canada were, you know, nothing was more funny than being in a room full of people who were in their 60s telling me what people my age think. And I'm saying, <laughs> like, I'm, I'm here. I can tell you what we think and why I That's came right. and why my friends aren't. And it just went, like, right over people's heads. And it's, yeah. you know, like you said, the parallels between <laughs> the, yeah. the working world yeah. and, and what I've seen in the church side of things is, is very, you know, it, yeah. it's, you just kind of, you, you got to smile and nod because it's just like, you know, yeah. opinion is here if you want it. But yeah. some people just, they latch onto assumptions. And I think it's also really easy to forget how yeah. you started. And, you know, like you guys can sit there and recount, like, okay, yeah, you started with the airfix and stuff, but like, there's going to be some pieces missing to that. How did you make that jump from the airfix to the rules? Yeah. How did you find other people? Right. Especially before the age of the internet. That it, yeah. I mean, like, it's, it's, it's one thing to find the models and the rules, but then how do you find the community? That's the key thing. And you've got to do a lot of searching. It's like, okay, I remember buying that box. I remember seeing that book in the library. I remember seeing that in the store, but how did I meet X, Y, and Z person? And that's, the, that's going to be the kicker that if you can really go back and be analytical about those early days of your gaming hobby, um, you'll find that it's not really that different. I mean, how you go about achieving it is maybe a little different, but you know, the end result is, is it's a social hobby. You've got to find people. Yeah. You've got to be willing to talk to them. You've got to be willing to interact with them. And I think you know, that's why conventions are great, but I think the best thing that's happening, especially for the historical side, is um, a lot of stores are moving to away from the traditional model of you, you can only play here what you bought here. You know, uh, Game Chamber in London, you rent tables. You can, you can be a member of their store and, and have unlimited table rentals for a monthly subscription fee to be a member there. And you could pitch up and you could play your Napoleonics there, no problem. They don't care. You, you've paid, you've rented the table. It's more of a social gathering space more than anything. There's a place in um, just outside of Oshawa called uh, Critical Hit Gaming Lounge. And it's a, it's a full-blown restaurant with six by four gaming tables on it. And they don't care. You, you want to roll up there and, and play Napoleonics or, or play you know, biblical historicals? You could do that. Just yeah. order your your, your nice. lunch sandwich from them and a cup of coffee, and you know, pay the ten dollars to rent the table for a few hours, and yeah. they don't care. Well, I think I'm going to go to Oshawa this weekend. Yeah, I was supposed <laughs> to have a tournament there before COVID nice. killed it, and I was really looking forward to it because I'm like, wow. this is like the nicest gaming store I've ever seen. I know it sounds amazing. <laughs> they roast they roast yeah. their own coffee on on in house. Wow, oh, wow, wow. Oh. yeah, sort of like like hipster gamers. I love it. Yeah. <laughs> Hey guys, um, the last thing I, I want to do before we thank you for for spending time with us, I said in my email we have a little thing that we call the uh, Canadian Wargamer Podcast Digital Library. So we ask each of you to uh, donate a digital copy. Uh, give us the titles of a couple of books that are near and dear to your hearts. They can be um, about wargaming. They can be about history. They can be about I don't know whatever. They can or can't have a Canadian connection. So. I'm going to put you on the spot, Jacob. You got one or two titles sure, for it? Sure. I'll, I got two for you. So, um, one of them is Frostgrave. I still love the game. Um, for me, it's basically as close as you can get to building a character in Dungeons and Dragons, but actually playing a miniatures game. Um, okay. And it's, it's a lot of fun. 
So I got the second edition. That's going to be my favorite. But also, Great. who's the uh, author, Jacob? Oh, it's uh, Joseph A. Hopefully, I'm saying his last name right, McCullough. Mm-hmm. Yep. Okay. Yep. And that's by Osprey Games. Okay. Published by Osprey Games. And then the other one. This is actually a special edition book. It's um, Blood and Plunder, the 17th Century. This is oh my the. Goodness. This is the deluxe collector's edition um, of the book. It's uh, leather bound. It's by Firelock Games. And it has inside of it two different miniature rule sets. Or not two different miniature rule sets, two miniature books. So it has the full rule book of Blood and Plunder. And then it has the entire expansion, No Peace Beyond the Line, inside one book. And it's nicely bound. And it looks really cool. I thought I, when, when you showed it, I thought uh, it was something your grandfather had handed down. It, it looks right. like that, doesn't it? It's got yeah. like the red leather bound. It's got yeah. the gold corners. It's got nice, uh, I think it's foil or who knows, but gold yeah. lettering on it. It's, it's a beautiful book. Lovely. All right. Thank you. Thank you. Evan, what have you got for us? Um, so I don't have them physical with me because they're upstairs in uh, okay. my bedroom where my wife is currently asleep. Um, okay. But, uh, there's two books. I'm going to go completely away from fantasy, even though fantasy gaming is, is what I did to talk a lot about here. The two books I'm going to suggest, uh, the first one is going to be The Damned by Nathan Greenfield. And that is the Canadians of the Battle of Hong Kong and their POW experience from 41 to 45. Okay. Um, absolutely amazing book to basically go into the the fact that these these boys were you know recruited in in 1939 1940 sent over there and it was it was pretty much known that if the japanese wanted to take Hong Kong, they'll take it and the battle had a 100 percent casualty rate everybody every single commonwealth soldier on that island was killed wounded or captured mm-hmm. and they it goes into the details of their pow experience and a little bit afterwards as well as some of the the war crimes trials afterwards that affected them so that was a that was a really good book it, it made me because you know i even though i took a lot of canadian military history when i was in university it was the first time i got a really good deep dive into hong kong you know it's we, we hear a lot about the shell we heard a lot about um italy but you know because hong kong was so few so quick Mm -hmm. it gets skipped over and i think in wargaming um it provides a really interesting set of scenarios because it's one of those few situations where you are not going to win you know your your victory conditions as the canadian soldier playing in maybe a setting of hong kong is going to be a very different set of win conditions than what the Japanese player is going to have. So I think it's both from a a wargaming perspective and then a historical perspective, it's a really, really interesting book. And then the second one I'm going to suggest, I can't remember the author, but it's called Far Eastern Tour, and it's about the Canadians in Korea. 1950 to 1953. And I think that's by, I want to say the McGill University Press. Um, But that's also... Yeah, we'll it's, it's, it it's called Far Eastern Tour. If you just look up Far Eastern Tour Canadians yeah. in Korea, yeah. um, it'll probably come up on Amazon. <clears throat> and um, that was a really interesting book because, again, it was it's you know it was a good end to end story of the Canadian experience. And there, it doesn't get into you know crazy gritty details, but it, it tells the story 
of of the Canadians in Korea, which I think is again another um, unfortunately overlooked engagement of the Canadians. I think it's come back a little bit more now, but for the longest time it was always in the shadow of World War II and then in the shadow of Vietnam. Yeah, for sure. Brent Watson is the writer. Is right. The author. Okay. Sorry, Brent Watson. Yeah, Brent Brian Watson. Brian Watson. Okay. That's uh, thank you very much for both of those. Um, we're hoping to get uh, a guy called uh, Brad St. Croix. Uh, if I'm, I hope I'm pronouncing his last name right, Brad, anyway, uh, on in December, uh, because we do a little Canadian content thing on this podcast. Brad's PhD was uh, on the Battle of Hong Kong. Awesome. And he has uh, uh, some really interesting takes on uh, that go kind of counter to some of the myths, you know, that the Canadians were kind of lambs to the slaughter who weren't trained and were kind of sacrificed on the altar of British imperialism. But anyway, he knows a lot about it. <laughs> I'm yeah. just some schmo who read one book, so yeah. Well, no, but it, it's a great subject, and those guys, yeah, what they endured in captivity was amazing. So, yes. yeah, yeah. Grim reading, thanks, yeah. Thanks, guys. So Thank it's you. been great having you on the the podcast, Jacob, Evan. Thanks so much. This has been uh, this has been great. Thank you. Thank yeah. you for having us. All right, we'll see you at Hot Lead soon. I hope. That was lovely to James. Thanks for lining up those interviews. That was uh, really interesting talking to Jacob and Evan. Yeah, they're great guys. Yeah, you were telling me you had some further thoughts after the interview about well, the Airfix generation. Yeah, they're um, they're talk about things being available, and then I was sort of thinking like back when we were kids, that's what was available in the hobby shop. You know, we got our we got our like dollar allowance, and we went down to the hobby store. And for me, it was McCormick's Hobbies on Oxford Street near the near the intersection with Richmond in London, Ontario. And, you know, Mrs. McCormick, right by the door, there's a spinner rack with all these boxes of Airfix figures that I could buy for like a buck and a half. And I'd save my Christmas money and I'd, I'd go down and I'd buy them because that's what was available. And the Roco mini tanks were, were downtown and, and at um, Dundas Hobbies near Adelaide Street. And I'd buy those because the, the Roco mini tanks, which were a oh, 187th, 190th scale, and then, uh, you know, the HO 172 scale Airfix stuff, it was all available and it was cheap. You know, you could buy it with your allowance. It was there and you could just get like get playing. And that's the same thing with these, you know, these starter packs, right? So I think that's why the Airfix generation, right. that's, that's why we're the Airfix generation because that's what, that's what we had. You know, so everybody, everybody played Napoleonics. And World War Two, and American Civil War, you know, because let's face it, the selection for medieval, like you had to be a real genius to get a medieval army out of the uh, Sheriff of Nottingham set and the uh, Robin Hood set. God knows I tried. You know, and the Romans were, you know, you got the, the ancient Britons with the big clunky solid wheels. Did you ever have any of those? Yeah, I didn't do very well with the kits that required assembly like the the first world war british artillery i could never get the limbers and the and the, the cannon assembled yeah and they're, they're always falling the horses are all falling off the bases and those little little nubs trying to go into the side of the horse and yeah 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 never worked and and well and the same with the same with the uh napoleonic cavalry you know the little tabs yeah. going into the bases and then they'd fall off yeah. halfway through your charge it was great. So, what? So, what's your thesis here, Professor? Um, what is what is readily readily and widely available is what defines, you know, the generation for the wargaming, right? I mean, the the people before right. us, um, they were playing. Well, older guys than us were playing with Airfix too. Um, 
you know, I certainly saw lots of Airfix stuff in, you know, Gene McCoy's Wargamer's Digest. He was doing the same thing. Airfix figures and Roko mini tanks. It was great. was what I was playing. But, you know, like HG Wells with the Britons Limited because they were cheap. These Britons holocast figures were cheap. You bought them in toy stores for like pennies. Mm -hmm. And you had the cheap little spring-loaded cannon and, you know, and so that's what they played with. Yeah. what was it the Siren figures in the interwar years? So, uh-huh. you know, and God knows what uh, the next generation will be because what will be readily available? I mean, now with 3D printing totally changing, you know, that's an earthquake. Yeah. On the sure. gaming scene. It's going to like, yeah, Games Work. I don't think 3D printing is really going to make Games Workshop shareholders lose sleep. No, no, not at all. But for people who don't want to play 40K, you know, now there's this massive, huge, you don't have to worry about what's being carried in the store. Mm-hmm. You know, you can download the STL files and print stuff. And, you know, it's, it, it, it's, it's pretty amazing. I mean, I just painted a, a little unit of, of 3D printed orcs. Yeah, yeah. I, I saw those. Jose in, Jose in Spain printed for me and sent, and sent to me courtesy of the spanish mail so when you first showed those on uh, twitter they looked distressingly orange but um well that, that was that was the resin he had he said that was the resin yeah yeah it's like i have this orange resin do you mind i said no no because it's gonna get painted yeah i'm gonna paint it like what do i care what the color is but yeah like elizabeth's like why did you get blo- blocks of cheese <laughs> very expensive cheese yeah five dollars a lump cheese um yeah. yeah once i once i got them primed and then i got my brown runny brown burnt umber base coat on suddenly you can see all the details like these are freaking amazing figures you know and they, they really respond to dry brushing and washing and all of the the undercuts and the recesses are both amazing and frustrating at the same time uh-huh. because you know th- these are one-piece sculpts or prints you know, so like people that want to, you know, paint the figure and then glue the shield on and, you know, glue the spear in or whatever. Sorry. You know, like the one pose has like leather hanging down from his helmet with, with metal studs, but he's holding his halberd. And so trying to get in between the shoulder and, uh, and uh, the um, staff of the halberd to get these little metal studs was kind of, you know, frustrating. Had to go back in and touch things up a few times. Uh-huh. But still, they're amazing. I'm, I want more. <laughs> I want more. <laughs> the hordes of Mordor yeah, must grow. More. Yes, yes. The hordes of yeah. Well, yeah. And you ever have too many orcs? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. I, I thought, you know, the Airfix generation, I, I guess that label applies to me too. Although I grew up in small towns, so my experience of toy soldiers was more mail order once I figured out. And it was mostly minifigs for me. Uh, metal figures. I, I do remember. I do remember getting luxury. some. Yeah, luxury. I do remember getting some Airfix figures. I had to carve. No. I had to carve figures out of balsa wood if I wanted <laughs> something different. I had to carve figures out of my teeth. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Teeth. Yeah. But you know, I, I I think it's one of those things. Like I said, it just depends on when I was taught. We were talking to Jacob and Evan. It just depends what hill you're standing on. I think the people who say that we live in a golden age of the hobby are bang on. There, we are so spoiled for choice now, and oh my uh, God, yeah. you know, I'm I'm actually excited for um, you know I don't know how long I'll be 
able to see or paint or be on this earth. But I'm excited for the future. I think people like Jacob and Evan or my son, John, they have tons of options and whatever they do with it, it'll be good. So I'm not too worried about it. Yeah. Yeah. I have an, an inherent distrust of uh, nostalgia and people who wax nostalgic. And I, and I, you know, a mutual friend of ours who will not be named uh, said on Facebook the other day that he didn't understand why people use new Napoleonic rules. He was perfectly happy with WRG5 or whatever the hell it was. <laughs> oh, I know who you're talking about. You know who I'm talking about. Yeah. Is it the definition of curmudgeon? Hey, buddy, we're talking to you. Yeah. yeah and yeah. Uh, you know what? That's fine. They can, they can. Uh, and, yeah. They can... And he, he and his, and, well, he has trouble finding people to play with. Yeah. And, and you know, if you like WRG horse and musket and it, it floats your boat, like, cool. Go for yeah. it. Yeah, I, mean, I guess you can get it free online now. I'm sure you can. You, yeah, somebody somebody's uploaded it, and you just you, get it printed off. You can um, steal it from a museum. Yeah, well, yeah. Yeah. I, like I, my my remembrance of WRG Horse and Musket was there was a lot of die rolling to go through to remove one figure. Yes. Yeah, and somewhere in in the distant past, I remember there was a WRG roll set where you had to each figure represented twenty men, but you had to keep track of how many hits. Uh, from 1 to 19 before you actually removed a figure, so you actually had to have a scratch pad. And, yeah, it's just... Yes. Those, yeah. those, those were the days. That was not a golden age. That was maybe a lead age, I think, or maybe a bronze Wasn't age. just... Yeah, I mean, like, and I think that, you know, that, that nostalgia thing, you know, it's because, we're, you know, we're remembering our past. Everybody says, oh, Christmas is for kids. Wasn't Christmas great when you were a kid? It's like, oh, well, yeah, Christmas is great when you were a kid. Because you got up early, opened your toys, and you sat around and played while people brought you food. You didn't have to wrap the presents. You didn't have to, you know, get up early to get the turkey going. You know, you didn't have to make sure dinner hit the table at 3 o'clock when all the relatives showed up. You don't have to worry about screaming kids overexcited puking from eating too many cookies. <laughs> you just you just sat and you you're just like, Mom, do I have to get it? Yes, you have to get out of your pajamas and you know, because grandma's coming over. Oh <laughs> no, and that was the big bummer. It, it it's just like, you know, nostalgia for older work because you know, I, I remember the games when I was younger and, and they were exciting because it was all new. You know, like my one box of Airfix French Curacy was Ney's entire cavalry reserve storming over the ridge at Mont Saint Jean, right? Uh -huh. you yeah. Know, these, these 12 guys or 16 guys, whatever they were, I was having fun. And they yeah. were badly painted. And, but I kind of like the terrain and figures I have now. You know, I wouldn't want to go back. What I, what I would like to do is go back to younger me and say, hey, hang in there, kid. Look what you're going to work yourself up to very true all right on that happy note we will uh the golden tinted hues of our past goodbye and we'll look to the look to the future so in a minute we're going to talk about uh, stuff going on in canada but i thought we would get to our canadian content corner which as conrad kinch said in his article in miniature war games is one of the reasons why he likes the podcast because we also talk about canadian military history Well, that is, of course, the Maple Leaf Forever, the old national anthem of the Old Dominion. 
and it marks the start of the Canadian Content Corner. That's the part of the podcast where James and I just have a bit of a natter about Canadian military history, about Canadian gaming, or just general Johnny Canuck stuff that makes us darn proud to have maple syrup coursing through our veins. And so as the Maple Leaf Forever, played by Her Majesty's Irish Guards, dies away, here is the Canadian Content Corner. One of the things that I would just recommend to our listeners, James, is uh, our good friend Brad, who uh, is on Twitter on on this day in Canadian military history. He did a he did a recent uh, Q and A with um, Paul from uh, World War II TV on YouTube. It was two hours where you could ask Brad anything on Canadian military history. So I would I'll put a link to that in the podcast notes because that was a great interview and. We are tentatively booking Brad to come on in December and talk to us because that's the anniversary coming up. That'll be the uh, December 25th. Not a very pleasant Christmas. You were talking about happy Christmases earlier, but December 25th is, of course, for Canadians, the anniversary of Hong Kong, which is Brad's specialty. So he's going to talk a little bit about that and about wargaming Hong Kong. I don't know if Brad's a wargamer, but we'll ask him about that. We'll have to ask him that. Yeah, through the you know war war gamer podcast, it, it is exactly. So I'm going to ask you a question. I'm going to change the subject slightly while we're talking about Canadian military history. James, I want you to imagine that you're walking around Fort York or Kingston or some some British garrison in the year 1812, and you see a guy in a red coat with a musket. All right, and you walk and you and you walk up to him. What language do you think he would speak if you said, "Hey, buddy"? Um, Scottish, Irish. Scottish, Irish, Yorkshireman, Yorkshire, <laughs> something not English. <laughs> Would you be surprised if he spoke uh, German or Polish or Lithuanian? Well, you know, being a student of military history, I would say, huh, that's neat. If I was just a, a one of her, His Majesty's loyal colonists, I go, huh, that's weird. <laughs> I think, yeah, you know, but. And again, you know, her Maj- his Majesty's loyal colonists were coming from all parts too. So I might oh, say, hey, it's a cousin. Yeah, it was the New World. Yeah, if you were, if you just got off the boat from uh, Germany, or your 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 folks were Pennsylvania Dutch that came north uh, after the Revolution. Yeah, maybe yeah, you speak yeah. German. Is it, oh, oh, are you from Dusseldorf? Do you know my cousin Carl? Yeah, you know, he's got the cobbler <laughs> shop on Mint Street. You know. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And you'll go. Dusseldorf has got like thirty thousand people in it. I don't know all of them. Exactly. So I found out about this uh, because I was a little essay on foreign soldiers in British service mm-hmm. during the Napoleonic Wars, and there was a cryptic reference at the end to these guys called the Wattville Regiment. Uh, the Wattville Regiment served in Upper Canada. They um, they had several areas of operation, including Kingston and. I found out that a guy called Alistair Nichols, who's a Brit, had written a book about them. So I got on the phone with Alistair Nichols and asked him about who were these guys, some of whom had experience in Napoleon's Grand Army, who were serving in Upper Canada. So uh, here's a very short interview with Alistair Nichols. I'm very pleased to welcome to the Canadian uh, Wargaming Podcast, Alistair Nichols. Alistair, how are you? Good, thank you. Yeah, thank you. It's lovely to have you as a guest. Um, I was given your name as a, a chap who knows a fair bit about the the Watfield Regiment. You're the author of a book called Wellington Switzers. 
can you talk, uh, just introduce yourself and say a little bit of how you got to uh, be interested in this? Yeah, you, see, you start with a difficult question uh, because I, I certainly, that's one thing I don't like uh, is talking about myself, really. <laughs> but uh, born from a military background, my father was an officer in the army, uh, so I was born in Aldershot. I uh, eventually became a police officer and after 30, just over 30 years of being a police officer, I've uh, been able to spend my time concentrating on researching and writing about uh, military history, in particular about the foreign regiments in the uh, British Army uh, during the Revolutionary and Napoleonic War period. How I got there, why and how? Um, basically, I think like uh, quite a few boys of uh, my age and started painting model soldiers, uh, the 54mm ones and fairly quickly I realized I that wasn't uh, my talent wasn't exactly in the painting uh, so I became more interested in more unusual regiments and in particular at that period of time the real uh, concentration in books and other sources were in the uh, French Napoleonic army and uh, through that from the, their foreign regiments I thought asked myself the question well what about in the British Army, surely they had foreign regiments. Mm -hmm. And in particular, in with a real focus on the Peninsula War, I had come up with the question, who were these Chasseurs Britanniques, which is a regiment that served in the 7th Division. So I started looking into that. And in particular, I found the Gruvel, three volumes of Gruvel, uh, dealing with the French emigre troops. And there were ch chapters about the Watville Regiment and Chasseurs Britanniques. So that's really got me started. Uh, on the role of that. Then in time, over many, 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 many years, um, I wrote a book about the Chasseurs Britannique. Um, and that, that regiment was formed at exactly the same time as the Watville Regiment. So my next project was the Watville Regiment. And that uh, that's the history, really. <laughs> hmm. the, the Watville Regiment... Alistair, can you talk a little bit about how it was raised and, and even the name? I take it, was Watville the name of its colonel? Uh, yes, yes, it was. Okay. Um, in actual fact, there had been a number of regiments, Watville, because uh, it was a family from, not far from Bern in Western Switzerland. In actual fact, it's, uh, it's, it's von Watville is the mm -hmm. proper uh, name, surname, as is used now. Uh, but... Uh, French was the language of uh, diplomacy and um, and warfare, military affairs, uh, certainly in the late 18th century, and not only in Switzerland, but uh, throughout Europe and, and the rest of the world, French tended to be used more um, than others. So certainly the foreign regiments in the British Army, with the exception of the King's German Legion, tended to be used, use um, French as the language. So it was the regiment to Watville was the word that was used. Um, so hence, say Watville rather than of Watville, de Watville. Right. Um, so hence Watville Regiment. How it started, uh, basically it all goes back to the invasion of Switzerland by the French uh, and overthrew the um, old constitution and set up a new satellite republic, the Helvetian Republic. And there was some resistance to this. Uh, initially, obviously, the resistance to the invasion, and then subsequently, the, the opposition to the invasion uh, continued. Then, 
what developed was afterwards was the uh, War of the Second Coalition against France. And in that time, uh, Britain, uh, the main contribution of Britain in the warfare in Europe was subsidising the Allies, but also sub uh, paying for and raising other units. And in that time, there was a number of uh, Swiss units that were raised because Switzerland was one of the fulcrums or centres of the of the warfare for that um, for that particular campaign. But then uh, the main protagonist of that was Austria, and it was uh, defeated by France and brought to the peace table. So uh, what happened was Britain was still in the war, uh, and by that time it was committed to the fighting in Egypt. So it essentially needed more troops to be sent to Egypt. So what they did was they formed two regiments, Chesa Brittany, that I mentioned before, largely from uh, the last of the emigre armies, the Army de Condé, and, uh, and the Watville Regiment from the remains of the Swiss Corps that Britain had raised. There was actually a bit of sort of... Uh, swapping of troops as well so that one company of the Watville regiment was actually uh, German from the Condé uh, army. These were basically what Britain wanted was their the actual paid professional soldiers. They weren't, if I can be brutal about it, they weren't so interested in lots of the emigre officers or people who wanted to be officers. They were more interested in the, the paid troops. And in the Chassepreti, the, the officers tended to be French emigres who had chosen to serve in the German paid regiments. And in the Watford Regiment, the, the majority of the officers had previously been in the Swiss regiments in Dutch service. So, so that's another story, obviously. So I'm getting the impression these were, uh, the rank and file were sort of hardened professional soldiers. Yes, that's correct. A lot of them, even in the Swiss Corps, were in actual fact um, Southern Germans, there were quite a substantial number of poles, mm -hmm. but of course that that's got to be uh, that term's got to be used carefully. Because Poland in the mid 18th century was much much bigger than it is now, and then gradually it, be, it was partitioned by Russia, Prussia, and Austria, and also so lots of people who were were called poles were, were Lithuanian, Latvian, Ukrainian, um, all sorts of. Uh, nationalities yeah. as they would be seen now. I just finished the memoirs of a, an officer called Berndt who served with the Polish Corps in Spain and, and uh, Russia, and he was, I think, uh, German by birth. Yes. But, yeah, so it's a, it's a pretty, it's a very, very cosmopolitan army both on both yes. sides for sure. The, the war starts in Upper Canada in 1812. Yeah. Were, were the Wattville Regiment in a part of the garrison by then, or were they no. sent? No. Most of the service, as I say, that, that they'd been raised to go to Egypt, which they did. Mm -hmm. um, so they, they were in Egypt, uh, just caught the end of the uh, campaign in Egypt. But then what happened was the it was the end of the Revolutionary Wars. Britain and France had a peace negotiations going on. So what happened was almost to keep keep some a negotiation something for throw in for the negotiation. Britain kept troops in Egypt during the negotiations and even after the signing of the Peace of Amiens in 1802. So the Watville Regiment and some other foreign regiments were still in Egypt for about a year. They, um, the Watville Regiment then went to Malta, uh, but by the time it got to Malta, it was pretty obvious that the wars were going to start again. So they were kept, kept on. Whereas 
a lot of the other foreign regiments have been disbanded by that stage because obviously the whole idea, well, one of the advantages of the peace for Britain was to cut, cut costs. Right. And uh, so lots of troops got disbanded, British and foreign. Uh, but these, these particular foreign regiments were kept on for that. And it was reformed as a proper British regiment. It, so it was in the army lists and everything like that. So that's from 1802. Served throughout in um, the Mediterranean region, in Italy, at the Battle of Maida. And uh, for a year, it was a garrison in Gibraltar. And subsequently, it went to um, and served in Sicily, so the defence of Sicily. Uh, because it's got to be remembered that up until about 1808, 1809, the Mediterranean was the main theatre for the British during mm-hmm. the Napoleonic Wars. And it was right. only subsequently that Peninsula became the main focus, as it were, just looking at the... So about 1811, the regiment went to Cadiz, so actually served as part of Wellington's army, but not under his direct command, uh, where they served as like an auxiliary corps uh, in the siege of Cadiz. And that's quite important for the story in Canada, actually, that that point. So they only arrived in uh, Canada, so I've got a couple of notes here. Uh, in Well, they arrived, arrived at Halifax uh, in May... 1813, and the following month um, to Quebec, and then worked their way up the St. Lawrence River to um, to go to Kingston. Right. Okay. So when they arrived, they were actually a very important element. And for me, when I wrote this, it's really quite interesting, I thought, because when they first arrived, they were on the States from 25th of May, on the army returns, they were they formed eleven and a half percent of the total British force. Mm-hmm. So there was a substantial reinforcement. Yeah, so that's how they ended up in uh, at Kingston because that was the main concern when the uh, it was the construction of the fleets on uh, Lake Ontario was was a, a major part of the efforts at that time. So that's when they arrived. I mentioned uh, Cadiz because while they were there, the uh, British general commanding the the troop, the British troops in Cadiz, they uh, instructed that all the infantry regiments should be instructed as artillery, as gunners. So they actually exercised once a uh, once a week on what was called the big guns, the uh, fortification guns. So. When they arrived in, in Canada, they not only had they had that additional ability to help the Royal Artillery. And this became important. So at Prescott, they had a detachment from the the main regiment was at uh, Kingston. They had two companies always detached at Prescott. And so when Prescott was threatened by uh, one of the um, US advances, they were actually were manning the guns across the river, firing across the river from, from Prescott. And... Subsequently, when they were at uh, the blockade or siege of Fort Erie, that they also served as, as in the artillery as well. I think, you know, for me, I think it's quite not, not necessarily a, a, an appreciated aspect of their service. Yeah, yeah. So they were fairly versatile. Mm, mm. Yeah. Would their um, their composition, um, the rank and file, would they have still mostly been um, Swiss, German, Polish by by the time they were in Upper Canada? Yeah, if anything, the Eastern European uh, element had become more significant by that stage. Uh, yeah, certainly, and, and most of the younger soldiers uh, would have um, 
units have come from the uh, Napoleonic army, from Napoleon's army by that stage. Yeah. There's, I'm sure you know this quote. There's a, a British doctor called Dunlop who observed them in the field, and he, he commented on... Um, Is that the sword and spirit you've got? Yes, that's right. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So more that's how, I, that's yeah. how I actually yeah. came across these fellows. And yeah. he commented on how they consisted of all the nations of Europe. And he said, yes. and he, he comments on how they weren't as good at, at fieldcraft as the Canadian militia, but they were very adept as old soldiers and foragers at making, um, you know, stews and soups. Yes. Yeah. And I guess that led me to wonder, did, you know, how would they have compared to the rank and file of, of British troops in terms of uh, quality and, you know, uh, uh, soldier skills? Uh, in terms of skills and experience, probably superior. However, they had they had they had obviously changed sides at least once, as it were. Mm -hmm. I say t at least once because a lot of them came from the foreign regiments in in Napoleon's army, which were recruited from prisoners of war, right? Uh, from like Austrian regiments or whatever. So they probably. Uh, more likely to exchange sides twice. So maybe they're a bit more uh, flexible, shall we say, uh, in terms of yeah, loyalty. Yeah. But certainly when they were prisoners, they their loyalty to the British, rather than switch sides for, for, to the US Army, um, was actually remarked upon. Oh, okay. Hmm. So, yeah. yeah. But certainly in terms of skills, and as I said, in terms of that flexibility and ability to to um, work as gunners or whatever, yeah, they they were superior, I think, in that yeah. way. Yeah, that's because this is a wargaming podcast. I mean, one sure. of the one of the questions that wargamers always ask when they come across a regiment is, you know, how do I rate them? Do I rate them as as line, as as militia, as tr you know, veteran, elite? So uh, your point's well taken that they were. As you said, very diplomatically versatile. I, I know that in in the Canadian garrisons, desertion was always a concern of the you know the British officers. Yes. You know, chaps would slip across the border and you know try to make it in the states or whatever, um, or just blend into the Canadian population. Was was that a concern with these fellows? Yeah, more slipping across to the states. I think that was more of a, a, a concern uh, rather than sort of mingling amongst the local population because right. obviously being of that nationalities it'd be yeah. stick out quite um be quite obvious they would have been um, conspicuous yeah and, and you know and, and certainly there seems some evidence that the americans did try and get them to cross the border as well right um yeah because of i mean the american army certainly in, in the war of 1812 as you probably know uh, readily recruited foreigners when I was doing a little bit of um, very, very sketchy research, I, I discovered um, a Lithuanian-Canadian website that was very proud of the fact that uh, some of the first Lithu Lithuanian settlers in Canada were, were um, men who were from the regiment who were paid off at the end of the war. Yeah, yes, um, yeah. I, I, I helped a little bit with that as well, yeah. Okay, great. So can you talk a little bit about what happened to them at the end of the war? Were they disbanded in Canada or were they? was that the end of their British military service? Um yeah, they well. What what happened was they after the Napoleon Wars finished, they were kept in Canada uh, rather than being sent um, straight away back to Europe. Mm -hmm. I'm not I'm not 100 percent sure why that happened. Possibly because quite substantial numbers were prisoners of war in the states and hadn't returned yet. That might might have been a reason for it. So 
Then the decision came that they would uh, be disbanded, but they were still in Canada. And there was a plan for numbers, particularly fencible regiments and other regiments, to be disbanded and to be encouraged to take land in Canada. Mm-hmm. And in particular, in particular areas that were considered strategically important. And one was is a, a Rideau Valley, uh, Drummond. That's right. Yep. Yeah. And the other one was uh, Lanark County. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, that's up near near modern Ottawa, north of Kingston. Yes. Yeah. And that was. And that, bear in mind that they were in Kingston, that was the main area that was considered they should uh, be settled in. So in early June, uh, 1860, yes, 2nd of June, five officers and 191 other ranks were discharged. The idea was that they would go to Perth settlement Mm -hmm. uh, up there and uh, would settle on land. However, what had happened when they got there? They, the land hadn't actually been surveyed properly, so they couldn't actually get onto that land in June to uh, clear it. So a lot of them just drifted off, and quite a few went to the states or, or other parts of Canada. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, but then subsequently, uh, a few more were discharged on the fifteenth of June, and then the uh, regiment uh, went down to Sorrel, and then Sorrel, and then to Quebec. Mm-hmm. ultimately to get to go back to Europe. And so a few more, um, 82 other ranks were discharged there, and uh, quite a few of them settled in Drummondville, apparently, as well. Largely, I've got to say, through either the messing up of the survey, um, but also that these these men, a large number of them, from very, very, from their teen, teenage years, had been soldiers in one way or another. So they weren't necessarily equipped mentally, physically, or whatever, it was certainly in terms of uh, aptitude and attitude uh, to uh, to become farmers and clear land. I mean, mm-hmm. some did, and, and some made a life of it, uh, but others drifted off, uh, found other employment uh, in the United States or other parts of Canada. And, and some of them actually joined um, the force that Lord Selkirk um, raised to go to Red River, the Red okay. River colony. Yep, yep. Um, and so s- some actually settled there as well after their service in, in the Red River colony. Yeah, well, that's fascinating. It's um, As Canadians, we have this idea that anybody in a red coat um, during the War of 1812 must have been, you know, English or Scots or Irish. And yeah. uh, it's fascinating to think that you could have walked up to these chaps and he would have had a thick European accent. Um, and it does speak a lot to... Um, you know, the diverse origins of my country. So um, mm. it's an absolutely fascinating little piece of history. Your book is some, one that I'm looking forward to reading now that we've had this conversation. It um, uh, was published in 2014, I think, wasn't it? Yes, yes, I think so. No. 20, yeah, around that time, yeah. I've got to say, I'm, I'm really pleased with it because I had a transcript of Louis de Watville, who was the colonel. He wasn't mm. the colonel who raised the regiment, but he was actually the nephew of the... of. Frederick de Watville, who raised it, and he, but he was the effective commander right throughout um, the, the regiment's history. But there was his journal, so it's really detailed on how he ran his regiment. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, get, you know, I really do get the impression that he was very caring, very efficient, but efficient as well, and quite demanding. But right. equally, took a real interest in his his men mm-hmm. throughout the history. And by the time he came to Canada, 
he didn't actually serve with the uh, regiment because um, he was uh, given a general's rank, effectively a brigade commander. And yeah, again, he was very, very efficient. He was always well thought of by uh, other British officers. In actual fact, is it is it Chateau Guy, which is the when Salabri, it's quite celebrated uh, Canadian victory against the. Yes, that's right. That was one of the yeah. battles in, in Quebec, yeah. Yeah, well, I mean, he, he, for instance, had actually arrived. Watville was the uh, general. He'd only arrived a couple of days beforehand, but he actually agreed with Salabri about his defensive positions and also signed off his advance immediately afterwards mm-hmm. because there was quite some criticism of Salabri of his actions immediately after the victory. But actually, Watville was the one who said, no, he, he did right, as it were. And, you know, there's all sorts of other little details. But, yeah, I, I think it's well worth a, a, a read to really get a, an understanding of a regiment of that time. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and, and there's a lot of interest in wargaming today in, in skirmish wargaming, and, and people um, like to tell little stories about, you know, they invent characters, and there's, you know, some of the smaller-scale games, there's role-playing aspects. So I can see how people might get interested in following um, the activities of a small band of troops that might have served with Napoleon at some point. And, Mm. are now wandering around upper Canada. So it's fascinating. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I think, that, you know, you talk about wargaming, and I've never done wargaming. I'd say occasionally I've thought about it, but although a long time ago. But when you talk about efficiency and morale, because that's quite important, mm-hmm. seen as quite important, you know. But I think also issue of disease, I mean, and illness and sickness, um, because obviously that's more people... More soldiers were dying of illness, of diseases and sicknesses than um, actual casualties. Right. And one thing about these these foreign soldiers who had served in the Parliament was they they tended to have lower sickness rates than the British units, which then would have made them more effective as well. Yes, that's true. I mean, they they were certainly I mean, <laughs> to have survived a time in Napoleon's Grand Army and then to have made it over. You know, you'd have to be a pretty hardy specimen and you'd have to know something about soldiering in the field for sure. Mm, mm, yeah. mm. So sanitation, um, you know, foraging, that sort of thing. Yeah. 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 But it did, did strike me that reading about the sort of what researching the Watford Regiment and uh, the service in Upper Canada in particular is how quickly the regiments were worn out, as it were, literally within three months of campaigning in, in that theatre. They, they were seen as being, they had to be withdrawn to refresh and re-equip and everything very very yeah. quickly yeah well not far from where i live uh alistair is um there's a trail called the nine mile portage which was <clears throat> one of the arteries that connected the great lakes with um you could sort of go from uh fort york which is modern day toronto uh, mm-hmm. all the way up to uh, the british naval base at well Penetanguishing. to make this um transition you had to you had to do a, a pretty epic portage dragging these huge boats which were called bateaus they were you mm. know, kind of large lake boats through the most um, through the most difficult country imaginable Penetanguishene. there's a there was a British naval base there and there's still if you ever come to this part of Canada and I hope you do I'll be happy to show you around there's uh, there are some 1812 sites off the beaten path north of Toronto we th- sort of think of the fighting as all being done in uh, Queenston Heights and that sort of thing but yeah. but just to get from point A to point B in Upper Canada in 1812 1813 would have been um, challenging. 
Well, uh, thank you so much for your time, Alistair. It's been a great pleasure chatting with you. And uh, thanks for coming on the podcast. And you. It's a pleasure. Thank you. Well, what an absolute pleasure speaking with Alistair Nichols. It was very kind of him to come on the podcast. His book, Wellington, Switzers, The Watville Regiment in Egypt, Mediterranean, Spain, and Canada, is a bit hard to find, but I did check the kentrotman.co.uk website, and there are still a number of copies available for purchase. And that concludes the Canadian Content Corner for this episode. Okay. Okay, let's look at uh, stuff coming up. James, you wanted, to, you wanted to talk about what our friends in Hamilton are up to in November. Well, first, coming up on October 16th, Evan is who we just interviewed. Evan Switzer. Yes, Evan Switzer. He's organized a Ninth Age event. Um, he invited me to come down for a demo, but if I'm up to traveling, I'll be out with the cadets that day, so I can't have a game at Ninth Age, sadly. It will be at the Game Chamber on Dundas Street East in London, Ontario on okay. 16th of October. And then on the 27th of November will be the True North Lard A's instead of Lardy, Lard A because we're Canadian. Lard A? Yeah, Lard A. Game day Get it, folks. Lard A. And it will run from 9.30 to 7 p.m. at the Royal Hamilton Light Infantry Veterans Association Hall in Hamilton, Ontario. The plan to have two time slots with four two fat lardies games per time slot. And they're trying to they're trying to sort organize a curry dinner. Cool. Um, we'll have a link to the write-up um, in the pod notes. And a Facebook event page is pending. I don't know if he's going to post anything on the Frozen Lard Facebook group, which is for Canadian lardies. And yeah, it sounds exciting. Barnaby and Chris Robinson are organizing it. I'm hoping to make it. I'm not sure if I'm going to run a game, but I'm certainly hoping to be there and play. Maybe I will try and run a game. I don't know. Well, that's very exciting. So October the 16th, which is a Saturday in London, Ontario. And November the 27th, which is also a Saturday in Hamilton. Yeah, the Riley Veterans Association Legion Hall in downtown uh, Hamilton. We will put uh, all of those details in the podcast notes, friends. It does seem like the, the wargaming scene is coming back even tentatively. So this is all exciting stuff. Yeah. Yeah. I have to say, too, that uh, our friend uh, Jacob, uh, on his Must Contain mini site, I noticed has a really nice little listing of Canadian uh, war games groups and clubs. Hmm. And uh, so, yeah, there, there is a link to Jacob's uh, must contain minis uh, website on, or on the podcast notes rather. Right. So you, uh, let's just finish up uh, in the last few minutes, just by talking about what we are working on. You've got those, um, those Spanish cheesy orcs. Yes. Well, it's Orktober. Orktober. So I, I had a, between a rainy Sunday and then a sick day. I had a lot of time at the painting bench, so I was able to bang, bang the uh, first 12 of these 3D printed orcs out. I'm very excited by them. Okay. Uh, and then it's also Terraintober. So I've decided, you know what, I need swamps. I don't have any swamps, and I need some. And I've had an idea to do them for, like, years. And so I've been, I've been, been playing with some various different ways to stick flock to plastic. And you've already posted a, uh, a sample on Twitter. Uh, two samples. Two samples. One was I used a glue, which is kind of like it's kind of like a rubber cement. So it sort of dries really fast. So you you put the glue down on the plastic, and you're trying to put the flock down, and 
it's drying before you get things spread out, which is unfortunate. And then for the next one, I thought, well, let's just try caulking. I've got all these tubes of caulking. So I put you know, beads of latex caulk down and then just kind of smacked flock on top and then waited 24 hours and shook it off. And wow. It seems to stick. Now, hopefully it'll flex with the plastic because you know, swamps I've always felt should be flat with the tape. Yeah. Right? Whereas, you know, I see them, you know, they're, they're like, you know, sheets of MDF and then they're building up the sides and making little depressions to pour water effects into and stuff. And it's like, so you've got the swamp up on a little pedestal. It just doesn't feel right to me. It is a little odd. Yeah. yeah I'm using, I'm using just a, a piece of plastic, which was scavenged from packaging, painted dark blue on the back. And then on the shiny side, you attach the flocking and tufts. Well, I'm impressed that you've gotten two done and that, uh, you know what I'm going to say next, right? You know what I'm going to say next. I'm glad to see that you didn't get bogged down. Yes. Well, you're, but, and, and you would do it, but you're swamped with things. I'm swamped with work. <laughs> oh my God. We're funny. We're so funny. Oh, we're here all week, folks. We're here all week. Yeah. Try the veal. Hey, here's a question. Joy and I were actually walking uh, the other day through the uh, through the part of the menacing wetlands, which are mm -hmm. just near Barrie, on the Simcoe Rail Trail, and we had an argument about what constitutes a swamp versus a marsh. So I have a theory, but I'd like to hear if I put you on the spot the difference between a swamp and a marsh. What would you say? I would say it's just a local linguistic variation. Okay, that's the wrong answer, but yeah. Swamp, marsh, bog, wetland. Well, Aren't they just all kind of the same? Well, we ended up, yeah, we ended up saying that a wetland is just like a catch-all term when you're, but in my opinion, this is just my opinion, but of course I'm right because I'm very smart. A swamp is where you've got water. Like if you've got, if you've got open water, if you can f fall in it and get wet up to your knees or maybe even drown or you can swim around, it's a swamp. But if you've just got like reeds and stuff and you can't really tell where the plants and the water start and where the water ends and it's all kind of mixed up together and there's no open water, that's a marsh. Hmm. That's my take on it. Interesting. So friends. It would also depend on rainfall. It would depend on rainfall. Yeah. Water you have standing around at the time. That's true. Yeah. So we're going to throw this open to our listeners. If you have a, a, a handy distinction between swamp and marsh, please let us know. And bog. Well, that's all. You had to throw bog in. Oh, dear. And a polder. Bog's an, bog's an old world thing, I think. I don't think there are bogs in North America. Well. I think of things like, I think of bogs as like ancient places in Ireland or Scandinavia where they throw people into. Like us? Like us? Or, or I don't want pastors. Yeah. <laughs> I think we would sacrifice the gods of 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 social media. Just make it stop. Make it stop. <laughs> Shut up. I don't think anyone's listening by now, buddy. Um, no, dear. So, what else? Uh, what else, What have you got uh, lined up next on your workbench? Well, and I'm closing in. I hope for Oktoberfest to finish my Bavarians. Right. Right. I'm I'm almost done the second last batch, and then I've got one more batch of 15 um, of these hat 28 millimeter figures, and I have an artillery limber to paint. Cool. So, couple of good sessions at the table. I I should have a brigade and a half of, of Bavarian infantry ready for the end of the month. Huh. How about you? What are you up to? So I can, I could theoretically finish my six millimeter. Bavarian Brigade. Yes, I have no I have no swamps, marshes, bogs, or wetlands. 
Um, I just started <laughs> possession, sir. Sounds like no. a declaration. I have day. no, I have none of my possessions, sir. <laughs> uh, exactly. Uh, I just finished uh, my uh, 20 millimeter foundry Prussians, and I'm very happy with the way they turned out. Yes. I likewise, finished a whole company of Battlefront Canadian 15 millimeter guys for yes. Italy. Who all so, look very spiffing. Yeah, I'm I'm happy with that, and I've just started assembling a whole box full of 15 millimeter biblical guys from uh, Gladiator, and they're just basically, <laughs> yeah, they're just ba like I have I don't know 25 chariots, <laughs> lots of lots of chariots. Babylonian Panzer Division. Babylonian Panzer. I don't I don't have Babylonians. They're all like Syrians and Arameans and Judeans. Oh, okay. but, yeah, so I'm, I'm basically going to yeah, recreate the whole book of Isaiah. But they're all like naked guys in loincloths. Well, as far as I can tell, if you look at 15 millimeter stuff that people put online, it's dead simple to paint. You know, you have sort of darkish brownish skin, black or brown hair, maybe a colored loincloth or a, some sort of colored robe. And then, I don't know, there seems to be some differences of opinion as how you paint uh, chariots. But, you know, as Tim on the Mad Axman podcast said, it's basically a bunch of blokes in T-shirts with pointy sticks running at each other. So, yeah. <laughs> Yeah, there there's no armor. Well, not really. No, I, I think that I think some of the chaps and the elite chaps and chariots had armor, but yeah, yeah. You can so, basically tell who's the king by uh, how much armor he's got. That's right. I mean, the fact he's not covered in shit. So <laughs> yeah, there you go. So that's probably what I'll be working on through October, November. Is uh, I'll be getting biblical, and I have some uh, Seven Years War Russian cuirassier that I'm working on as well. Mm -hmm. uh, so very. very very sexy foundry figures. I'm very fond of the foundry seven years war line. I have to say. Well, I know I, I, I painted up some some foundry Napoleonics that I got um, I got cheap from Mikey. Like they they were just lovely to paint. I know I've never yeah. really painted a lot of foundry stuff. It was like, wow, these are really great. They're they're beautiful figures. So possibly possibly Broadwood Brian Ansel have sculpted some of them. I'm not sure. I'm not sure on my foundry mythology, but there's there's somebody who knows. Somebody who knows, yeah. All right. All right, my friend. I guess we are wrapping up episode number six of the Canadian Wargamer podcast. Um, not sure who we're interviewing during November, but we'll uh, we'll find out soon. Yeah, All we'll right. go poke some people, rattle, shake the bushes. Exactly. We'll, uh, we set out, we set out uh, donuts and uh, cups of Timmies and traps. There you go. Yeah. Maybe we'll find an expert on Seven Years' War Bogs and Marshes. <laughs> By the way, here's a trivia question for you. They're speaking. What is the connection between Boggs, Tanks, and the Canadian War Museum? Before we go. Boggs, Tanks, and the Canadian War Museum. Um, I'm guessing that they have a tank in their collection that was found in a bog. You are very, very true. You are, you are quite true. And I'm not going to ask you for the specific tank, but if somebody would like to write in, uh, this is proof that you've actually made it alive to the end of this episode. If somebody is listening and you can tell us, A, what kind of tank it was and where the bog was, we will send you something. I'm not sure what. We'll send you a cookie. Um, our heartfelt gratitude. And maybe maple syrup or something. Our, our, th All right. our thoughts and prayers. <laughs> thoughts and prayers. All right, mate. It's been fun. Take care. <laughs> night. All right. Good night, everybody. As is our custom, we end this episode and every episode of the Canadian Wargamer podcast with a march from the Canadian military tradition. 
This month, members of the Royal Canadian Artillery Regiment of Canada are mounting the ceremonial guard at Buckingham Palace. And so it seems a natural choice that we end this podcast with the Royal Artillery Slow March of the Royal Regiment of Canadian Artillery. The Canadian Wargamer podcast is copyrighted by Mike Peterson and James Manto. This edition was recorded for the first time using Audacity software on a MacBook. Take care, folks. See you later.